This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, we're live. Hi. Hello, good morning. Good evening. Hi, Dr. Carr. I'm so glad to see you, Professor Hunter. How are you, my Uh, friend? I'm here. I'm on this side of the earth. How about that? I think that's a good thing. Um, It's a great thing. We're going to talk about ancestors. I think that's going to be a common thread, you know. um, You know, last year. They're always with us, so it should be a common thread. All right. I appreciate you so much. I'm grateful for the classes. Let me say hello to everyone all over the world, wherever you are. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I think it's our 48th episode. And um, yeah, we're moving along. Uh, Okay. So you start telling us about your thoughts on the great Cicely Tyson. Well, you know, as we're having our conversation, I was watching the video, part of the video of your conversation during the week. And by the way, welcome back into the classroom. We've added our other layer back, right? So I was was captured by how you opened that conversation you had during the week uh, on the radio with how you asked those young people, well, you tell me. Okay, so <laughs> tell us. Right. I, so I, I don't. I'm not. You know, I don't teach at the HBCU as you do. So the vast majority of my students do not look like me. Um, in fact, if I get one Black American a semester, it's a lot. But it's a lot of kids from, you know, Asian backgrounds, Hispanic backgrounds, from all over the uh, country. Literally, I had a kid from Turkey uh, and a kid from South Korea last semester. Hmm. So I was just curious, you know, Cicely Tyson had passed and I wanted to know who knew her. Raise your hand. And I have one black brother, one young man in the class. He's 22. Not a hand went up. And it, and it struck me, right? Because I was like, of course, everyone knows Cicely Tyson. Everybody. Come on. But, you know, 20 years ago, I was on the radio in New York and I went out into the streets because I used to do these fun things. I would go out in the streets to talk to people, you know, the way Jay Leno used to do. Um, but before him. But before him. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's probably paying attention. And I asked people, do you know Emmett Till? Wow. Just people on the street randomly in New York. And I would oh, say 20-something years ago. I mean, I, his mother, Mamie, was alive and living in oh, Jersey. was, absolutely. And I had actually conversations with her because a friend of mine, Chris Benson, was doing a book with her wow. from Chicago. Um, yeah, yeah and, and maybe I would say two out of 10 knew who Emmett Till was. So as we convene these classes every Saturday, it's not just about us remembering from the source those of us of of the African diaspora. But I think, you know, this classroom is so important because so many people just don't know. Yeah. And we assume because we know that everyone knows. Of course, everyone knows X, Y, and Z. No question. So I appreciate you even more because it's crazy. Um, and, And we all know and should know Anne Frank. Yes, this is the function of the curriculum and the textbooks and the school system. My, my, one of my Jacobs, Jacob Carruthers, who we'll talk about a little bit later, I'm sure he, he wrote once. He said, you know, we're not satisfied with the people who say you should teach your history at home. You should learn your history at home. Our children are in the schools. We pay tax dollars. We pay money for our children to receive an education. The, the, the home is not equipped 
for that. That's the function of the school. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just want to make, no. make that distinction. If Emmett Till were taught the way Anne Frank is taught, then everybody would know. And that's not to eliminate Anne Frank. That is to say, let's uh, let's have this fight, because believe me, this isn't polite conversation. This is what Jacob Carruthers used to call intellectual warfare. This is a fight. Anyway, go, 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 go ahead. Amy. No, I, I didn't want to. I, I wanted to get off to the races. You know, I was reading somewhere that, you know, and, and there's such a thread woven into these classes. And, you know, the ancestors are here because we can talk about something four months ago and there's a thread that comes through to the present. I did not know until today that Cicely Tyson, her first job was with Ebony Magazine. And we had this whole conversation about John Johnson. We had a whole lesson on Lerone Bennett and the power of black media and what the Johnson, John H. Johnson did with his vision for reclaiming and remembering black people through Ebony and Jed. But Cicely Tyson appeared in, Je in Ebony for the first time as a model. How about that? She was a model. I mean, in addition to being everything else. I love the way that you all packed so much in that little 10 minutes that you posted on YouTube. If y'all haven't seen it, in addition to subscribing to the channel, go back and look at that clip that just went up. Uh, y'all are having that conversation because she entered the public sphere in many ways. As you say, she had to buck her mom. I mean, these are these are these are Af Africans from the, the African Caribbean, from Nevis. <laughs> in other words, you know, ain't no Africans coming here to be out there play acting and doing all this stuff and hardcore Christians, which people might see as a contradiction in some ways. Some of the folks in the African center community, in some ways, there are contradictions. However, what is deep in African people is this sense of spirituality, no matter the system you find themselves in. So her mother was dead serious. I mean, so yeah, Cicely Tyson, that was in spite of her mother, but in some ways, probably more in line with her mother's 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 mother. I mean, the ancestors just shoot through you. So I mean, but yeah, she enters she enters public consciousness in, in with with the visual. And you know, it's interesting in it, isn't it, Karen? Isn't it for, for our generation, for those who were roughly speaking, maybe two generations behind Miss Tyson, you know. In addition to the movies, in addition to television, and we'll talk all about about all that in passing. And much of that is the stuff that folks can get on their own, which is why, again, again, I, I'm so grateful for you for creating this space because, you know, we get to be, we get to not not fill in the gaps. That's the wrong language. We need to reverse that. We need to we get to bring all that stuff we will see into the framework we need. That's that really that governance question in, in, in our in our curriculum framework, but. You know, in addition to the, the the movies, in addition to television and all that, a lot of folks knew Cicely Tyson because of exactly what you said. How many times did Cicely Tyson appear on the cover of Jet or Ebony? I mean, she was a constant presence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she was. And, and, and in terms of standards of beauty. And then you and you look at her new book, As I Am. Yes. Right. And, and you think about, again, you know, we talked a little bit about Sam Cooke and how he shaped the way black men were able to wear their hair naturally. And you think about that. Black men couldn't wear their weren't wearing their hair naturally until Sam Cooke was like, <laughs> y'all don't get that cock in that damn lie. And ah. what, what the hell are y'all doing? You know, Bizarre. Bizarre. was this Tyson bald? Natural, short, teeny-weeny afro. You it's know, amazing. It's braids. Amazing. It's amazing. And 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 wow! I'm glad you mentioned that because and for for everyone watching, y'all know that we don't. Well, 
I started to say we don't rehearse, but we do. We rehearse with our lives. Our lives is what we do. This is what we do. You know, well, wait, the, the, the truth, the truth. Um, two minutes before noon, uh, I popped you in because I was I was oh, running. Yeah. I'm gonna just tell the truth. Yeah, I was running. I, I, I did a sauna and I was like, oh, wait, what time is it? Okay. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, let me oh, let me just put a head wrap on. And then all right, all right. You ready? You like, I'm ready. So right. I hit the thing and then we hit we haven't even talked today. No nope. today or the nope. day. No, and we and we and we like to those you know in terms of our process. We we like to when we start talking in those two minutes before uh, President Hunter hits live. We always say, "Wait, wait, wait, wait till you hit live first. <laughs> we don't even want to talk about what we we just come right into. And in fact, you said something that brought back a memory. Oh my gosh, almost well, thirty five years ago, I guess it was when you said, "Oh, showtime," and I thought, "Oh." That in, in my recesses of my mind, I went back to 18 years old at Tennessee State. First time we marched in my first game against Alabama AM there in what they call the whole Hale Stadium in, in Nashville, the home of Tennessee State University. The aristocrats was up, and that's what the HBCU bands say before we go out. Showtime. <laughs> and then we all showtime. We go out just like a team. You said, I said, man, I haven't thought about that in so long. But this is but, but what we do every day is this work and our process is very much representative of who we want to be in the world. And I think Ms. Tyson is like that. And last week we were talking about the hammer, Henry Aaron, he had made transition. And we said, well, we'll, we'll talk about the 1776 commission and the curriculum stuff this week. And of course, in those days, not only did Ms. Tyson make transition, you mentioned Cloris Leachman, of course, and put her in context. Again, bringing those things into another framework, which is extremely important. And then we have John Cheney. And I'm looking forward today. Everybody, Karen Hunter, among many other things, is a sports journalist. So yeah, I can't well, wait to hear you talk. No, about I mean, that. I don't have that, that much, but the the connection for you, Temple. I think about oh, yeah. you in Philly, and yeah, I John you know, yes, and and just you know the the owl, the Temple Owl, and he literally looked like an owl. You know, yeah, he did, didn't he? <laughs> with the, with I'm, I'm glad he did. His shirt sleeves up, and uh, he was so intense. You know, before for black people enjoying college sports, where you know, until I think it was Kentucky, we couldn't even play college sports, you know, um, well, for so many white college sports. Right. Yeah, because right. he, he was playing sports like the devil. They didn't want to play us. Thank you. Thank you. Because hockey, there's no hockey without black people in Nova Scotia. How about that? Let's say that. All right. So I apologize because no. we are so conditioned to see things through their lens that it's it's almost like part of our vernacular to say those things. But I think about, you know, the pride that I had with John Thompson, the pride that I had with J John Cheney and watching those brothers, because black people, we, we couldn't coach. We couldn't be quarterbacks. We could, you know, and it's still a problem. Sure. It's still a problem in the NFL today with black men coaching. Sure. And there is. And, 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 and let's be very clear. I'm very happy to realize that uh, the white world has recognized yet another of our countless number of wordsmiths and in, in our young sister, Amanda Gorman. But let's be very clear. You didn't unban Colin Kaepernick. So if you think we stupid enough to go with a poet at the Super Bowl as some kind of man, you racist. You know what? God bless y'all. In fact, what I, I wrote a little poem. I said, here's a poem for you. Rose the red, violets are blue. Take your uh, fake uh, virtue signaling and uh, unban you know who. In other words, y'all y'all think we that dumb? But anyway, of course you do because we won't turn it off. But that's a whole that's a whole. Well, actually, that's part of the conversation with John Cheney. John Cheney, and I didn't know him well, but I, but you couldn't not know him. I came to Philly in 1992 go to get to get my doctorate, 
And I was there in that temple in school until 98. And of course, I lived there until 2010. Before I moved down here, I was commuting back and forth. John Cheney, I had his students. I had them cats in, uh, in class. John Cheney reminded me in many ways of a man I did know fairly well, uh, Wilma Rudolph's coach uh, at Tennessee, then a and Tennessee State, who was still on the wall when I was there, when we were there, uh, the great Ed Temple. Ed Temple published his memoir around 1980. It's called Only the Pure in Heart Survive. Ed Temple used to run the Tiger Bells four day in the morning. You got to get up. Why? Because after you finish practice, you go to class. That was John Cheney, 5.30 a.m. John Cheney had practice. And parenthetically, because see, these are two new ancestors, and we're going to blend it all together because we are teachers, and that's part of making the connections. Let's pause here to remember that there was, I think it was 1977, a Wilma biopic. And uh, guess who played Wilma Rudolph's mother? Sweet Tyson. Sweet Tyson. No question. <laughs> In fact, uh, Wilma Rudolph had a child while she was at Tennessee State. She did. And uh, I bet I know you know who played who played her God. child's father in Wilma. Hold on, I don't remember. Yes, you do, do, because he's famous as hell now. I might say he's the most he's the best actor alive. What? The best. <laughs> Come on, don't don't make me don't don't make me look. Here's, it here's up. another clue. His wife now was in Wilma as well. She played the character who was Mae Fags, who was one of Wilma Rudolph's teammates, another Olympian. You don't see her a lot in the in the movies. People think she's just his wife, but she's in fact an actress on her own. There it is. You know who it is. Don't think too hard. Come on, Doc. I'm if you said, okay, who's the best actor alive right now? Who's uh the top I would... five? I would put Denzel. Stop right there. You just named him. Okay. Denzel Washington played an 18-year-old. <laughs> Denzel. Um, and then there's um, Denzel. And right now. Denzel, like, right, no question. You know, somebody Denzel. said Sidney Poitier. Yeah, he hadn't acted in a while. Yeah, it's but, Denzel um, right. Washington. Okay. Right. And, and, Den and Denzel played Wilma Rudolph's baby's father. Eventually, they got married. I think 1963. They had four children. Two boys and two girls. But they had a little girl. And they had Temple the track coach at Tennessee State was like, nobody gets pregnant on my team. And if you, you can't run for me, I'll make an exception for women, but you can't bring the baby here. You got to break up with the boyfriend. So they had to plot to get the baby away from St. Louis back close to where she grew up, which is close to Nashville. So that she could be with, you know, the baby. I think Yolanda's the baby name. But at any rate, that's just Lee Tyson and Denzel Washington in 1977, the women biopic and her coach. Can, can, I, can I pause? No, no, of course, of course. You know, black people have been stigmatized. You know, Cicely Tyson had a baby at 17. Mm -hmm. and her mother, mother kicked her out. Along with millions of others. <laughs> That's what, you know, um, it is a source of shame, or at least it was, especially in our generation. And my father was very strong. You know, his his word was bastards. You can't, he wouldn't oh, let me play. No, I, no. I can't go. Oh, that person's a bastard. And I was like, but dad, they ain't had nothing to do with their birth. Now, how you going to blame a child? Like, I would have these discussions with him. But in his mind, you know, we have been so conditioned as if there's a scarlet letter on us, as if we had choices. You know what I'm saying? And I you feel like... That, Hester Prince. You, you just put your finger on why we have it. In other words... it's the opposite, right? Now the pendulum is swung in the other direction, and I think we've overcorrected. Back in the other direction. Back in the other direction. I mean, because... You know, when did when did people of African descent start thinking having children at, a, at younger than 20 years old 
was a bad thing. When, when if we if we if we had to guess, is there a? I mean, I in other words, when because they were raping us at young ages. Hello. In other words, let me make sure I'm looking for. I had to make sure the, the computer was. Uh, yeah, is it on? Yeah, it's plugged yeah, it's up. Done. I want to make sure it's plugged up because I can't run out of. We can't run out of. Uh, energy no, you cannot. <laughs> no, we can. We can. I just want to make sure we together here. Da, 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 power dial. said battery is not charging. What does that mean? Okay. Hold right. on, give me a second. I just want to make sure that everything is plugged in. And, uh, the okay, there it is. There it is. We good. So, oh no, this thing is tripping. All right, so we'll get it together. If oh, there it is. There it is. We good. So, rape for sure, which is not a metaphor. It's literal. However, the we know that. We were being brought into this criminal enterprise, this settler colony turned states, as early as the 15th century with the Spanish and Dutch. You know, we, and this is stuff we, we can talk about, but you know, then the then the English come and this kind of Anglo-centric thing takes over. And so we still obsessed with this 1619 number or whatever. Either way, we're brought into the criminal enterprise as labor. That very quickly congeals into the enslavement system, but we're being brought in in so rapidly in so large numbers, not even really what we now call British, the United States, British North America or Spanish North America. We're being brought to the Caribbean and, and to Latin America. Only about five and a half percent of the boats that ended up on over here from Africa go straight to what becomes the United States. And most of them are in Charleston. Most of them are New Orleans, port cities like Boston, you know, fewer people, of course. But my point is this. It is only after we enter the 19th century that you see the explosion in what they call the domestic enslavement, because they you know, so-called founding fathers call themselves phasing out the slave trade in 1808. That's one of the pillars of the 1776 commission. They said, well, they, 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 they mapped into the United States project, the end of slavery. That shows you their greatness and whatever, whatever. You take your great, 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 great grandfathers and all them and, and go set aside. We'll come back to that. But my point is this. In the half century or so between the formal end of the enslavement uh, by importation, which continued illegally up till, as we know, the Civil War and the Civil War, you know, the main way you got Africans was reproduction. And they couldn't rape their fast, although some of them I'm sure had great rape fantasies that find their way still into uh, American pop culture. But you know, which is why, you know, I'm all good with everybody saying they're children of Cicely Tyson. But I wonder if Cicely Tyson, maybe even Cicely Tyson would have played the love interest of a, a white president snatching her into a broom closet in a scandal. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we can speculate. But my point is this. They couldn't rape fast enough. They couldn't rape fast enough. They used African people to reproduce other African people. So you've got women who, as soon as they're childbearing age, get them pregnant. So, you know, 13, 12, 13, 14 years old, let's pump those babies out, right? Because every baby come out is like cash out of an ATM, which is absurd. So about 1860 and 1861, the bodies of Af African people, just the bodies, just our bodies in this country called the United States were worth more than all the real property and all the money in the banks combined. Just the bodies of African people based on what you could get. And if you, if you were a young girl, that's a premium value right there because you're not buying a young girl. You're buying her and her eggs and you sticking this brother with her, which is why as we fought our way out of enslavement and came out of enslavement everywhere in the Western Hemisphere, two things happen. Number one, in our in our 
determination to build community, to not only survive what had happened to us and our ancestors, but to transcend it, we began to pursue the inverse. Wait, wait, wait. Even though the weight was still younger than 20, but here's the thing that really began to invade our minds. These are the worldviews, which is why when you said the scarlet letter, it made me think of another thing that's in the school curriculum that too many of us had to read in high school or junior high school, the scarlet letter. When you're reading Hawthorne, reading about Hester Prynne, oh, it's a sin and a shame. Why? Because the preacher is the lascivious sneak in your quarters at night. But in the daytime, he's the most pious cat. Sound familiar? Yes, yeah, like every damn politician in American history. But the idea is that that stigma we even we inherited about when to get married, when to have children. That thing is heavily influenced by our immersion in these other worldviews. And it's almost like we are proving to them that we're moral. That's exactly right. We're, we have to prove to them that we're clean. That's exactly and, right. and our existence is through their lens. So the notion of Sicily having a baby out of wedlock. How about that? Wilma Rudolph having a baby, you know. Right, right. With a man she eventually married. And they were right. not married very long, maybe eight or seven, eight years. But but the point is, she would have been with him. Coach Temple was like, nah, we can't have no pregnant girls on the team. And you're going to break up with your boyfriend. I mean, it's like. Because, because you're making us look bad to white people. How about that? And we make an exception for you because you faster than the wind. And them Negroes turn around and won all the damn gold medals in, in the Olympics in 1960. I mean, so again, what what is the what is the face? What is the face of ourselves that we teach ourselves to show the world? That's that social structure question. And as we as we're talking, Karen, again, bringing these ancestors along with us on this weekly journey we have, you know, our process. Y'all we heard y'all heard y'all hear every week our process, right? We come into the space. And after Cicely Tyson made transition, in fact, we were uh uh you know Roland Martin does his rate his yep. regular show. We were live when the news came, and then Roland immediately started doing what he does, doing what y'all do. You talk to your people, next thing you know, here come Danny Glover, next thing you know, I mean, all kind of people. The next day he had Janetta Cole and all them come on talking about him, talking about uh, her and the important thing was in listening to that conversation and being there in that conversation in real time and then being in this conversation in real time, this is the conversation. In other words, this is the unpoliced space that is open to the world that really demonstrates who we should always be. We should never be afraid to have these kind of conversations because they're, they, they're about our humanity, our shared humanity. Danny Glover said something that's very important. He said, you know, Cicely Tyson she meant something very important to us. And by us, he meant black people. And then he said, and then through that to the world. So again, this isn't either or. You stand in your full humanity and engage everybody else in their full humanity. But if you stand in your humanity trying to fit whatever you think's going on in somebody else's head, then you're already less than human. It really don't even matter what come out of your mouth, which is why, you know, and you know, you, you know, the process we all many of us had the same process i won't say we all do but i in my wildest fantasy we all would for me you know we know sissy tyson made transitions it's okay this is thursday night so i know we're going to talk about her saturday so and then john cheney and you text me just two words john cheney i said man i said yeah and and so you know my process is i'm gonna sit with that begin with a text begin with something and of course we know how the uh the New York Times works and a lot of the 
white face and media works because they got the resources to do this. And of course, the New York Times obituary uh, crew is legendary. They made a documentary about them a couple of a uh, couple of years ago. Very interesting. They write, oh, they start writing obituaries of people they know they're gonna put in the in, in the paper years in advance. Yep. And, and then when oh, person that boom 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 press go. The thing that blows my mind. I was looking at clips from uh, Henry Aaron's uh, funeral ritual last week, this past week. And of course, I'm listening to these white folks talk about themselves using Hank Aaron. So Bill Clinton, oh, you know, uh, Henry Aaron never wanted credit for anything except helping me win Georgia in 1992. I said, look at old Bill. Bill been reduced to coming to black people funerals talk about itself. It's all right, Bill. Y'all want to invite Bill to the cookout. That's fine. He ain't coming to my cookout, but that's cool. Because y'all don't know too much about Bill Clinton, who did that. Remember that execution he did on the way to running for president? Like, let you know, I'll, I'll kill, I'll kill a mentally uh, challenged black man. I can put somebody there. Then Bob Costas comes on and does a little, quite, little slight dialect conversation. You know, Henry Aaron asked his father. He told his father he wanted to be a, pl- a pilot. His father said, "Ain't no black pilot." So look at, look at Bob. Bob real comfortable. You know, Ken Burns got him comfortable in them baseball documentaries. Then he turned around. He said, "I want to be a ball player." He said. He says, father said, ain't no black ball players. I'm saying this man, daddy played with Satchel Page in the pickup leagues and in, 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 in the local Nick version of the Negro League. Come on, Bob. Work with it, Bob. Work with us, Bob. But I understand, Bob, because it's always been about you. I'm saying I have to say that when when John Cheney made transition, I think we're going to talk about them, too. So I'm sitting with a text. I'm looking at these texts. By, by that, I mean the real-time obituaries. Oh, and, and one thing Bob Costa said, I appreciate it, because we didn't talk about it last week, and I'm glad he glad he did say this. He said, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had written an obituary for Henry Aaron and had it in their back pocket because of the number of death threats Aaron got. Remember, Aaron hits that 713 home run. In fact, while I was looking for, um, <laughs> while I was looking for, uh, for stuff on for Cicely Tyson and, and and John Cheney, I came across this. That's that Aaron. That's the first autobiography with Furman Bishop, Aaron by Henry Aaron. This is the one that was published in 1974, and so it goes right up to the last day of the season in the uh, in 1973. So if you see his statistics there, you see Atlanta. His total career numbers of home runs. Oh, his total numbers of home runs is 713. In other words, he ended that season. The Atlanta General Constitution had written an obituary because it wasn't guaranteed Henry Aaron was going to make it through the winter and, and, and go to spring training and go play regular games and hit a home run. So, I mean, so they have, that's the level of pressure this brother was under. had to live with for months after the end of the 1973 baseball season. So the Times had these, so I'm reading the Times obituaries. Yeah, you know, I'm a time subscriber. I mean, in fact, Wesley Morris had a very uh, good piece in today's uh, times. There's Cicely Tyson right there. It's Wesley's piece. She kept it together so we didn't fall apart. I know he don't write the headlines, but again, it's all about them. Understand? So, and it's all about us reacting to them. She kept it together so we didn't fall apart. Here's a bulletin, uh, 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 headline writers, when you're writing about black subjects, we don't fall apart. That's why you got a damn country. And it wasn't even our objective to keep you together. So let's be clear. That's just an incidental thing that benefited you. We don't fall apart. Just like, in case you didn't know, black don't crack. <laughs> so let's be clear. She kept it together so we didn't fall apart. Hey, man, I'm sure I could see Wesley Morrison. Why did he write that? They, they wrote that, brother, because it's not your institution. 
it's always about them. So our relevance is about them, which is nothing you can do anything about. But here's what you can do something about. Don't shape your life so that you're trying to be relevant to them. Don't make yourself a figment of their imagination. They've got that covered. They're going to make you a figment of their imagination. Who is they? I'm talking about what Clyde Taylor called the art culture complex. I'm talking about everywhere from Hollywood to social media to anything that can drill down to the thing that you all talked about last week, too, in the radio. I was fascinated with. And I'm glad you had the sister on to walk us through this whole thing with Robin Hood and them. Profit. It comes down to profit. So if you want to see when you're going to it's going to be a beef, you mess with the money. You mess with the resources. They'll shut you down and make up an excuse later. But the first thing they got to do is stop you nickel and dime Negroes messing around here and taking hit, aim at these hedge funds. That's it. <laughs> we don't play that with money. And, and in a minute, I'm talking about how Cicely Tyson, in addition to everything else, and John Cheney represent that, that third rail, that fault line, that collision course, that battleground, that place for the warfare between the social structure, who we are to other people, and the governance structure, who we are to each other. So so, so the Cicely Tyson thing is to say, I start with a text, reading around, thinking, and then sit there with the text quietly and remember. So for every sentence in obituary, I'm thinking about errors, not errors, it's not errors, because it's people, you know, narratives and narratives, but things I would say differently, things people have said differently, things that people you are talking about would say differently, and we picking apart a narrative. And then I will follow that memory through to the literature. And of course, still being at a disadvantage until I can get everything out of storage and up. And then that way, these conversations, imagine these conversations with all the resources, because every time I'm thinking about something, I mean, I have obviously the Will movie and the book that the the, the, the book, the movie was based on, little trade paperbacks. Every one of those uh, movies that Cicely Tyson was in, almost all of them, they did a companion book. And so, and sometimes the book precedes the movie, like Ernest Gaines, who just made transition, uh, I think last year, year before last, uh, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. It's a book first. The great Ernest Gaines, a gathering old, of old men, the great Louisiana writer, right? Wilma, there's a book to that. Sounder, there's a book to that. All them little trade papers, I can see them in my head, but I can't grab them. But in walking through the texts, it allows us to construct enough of a conversation to get us here. This is where we could start off at, at the long beginning. Cicely Tyson, and for many people, they may have seen the Oprah uh, masterclass, I guess that was maybe five, six years ago, where she talked about cutting her hair. You remember that, uh, prop? Yeah, the yeah, story. Uh, that's yes. Talk to us about it. No, I mean I don't remember. You know, the, the you please don't put me in this position today. <laughs> to no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, Wait, but, but let, me, let me just let me just let me just be let me just be clear. You are the one with the impeccable memory between the two of us. <laughs> Listen, uh, your ability to recall things, I think, is um, I think there's your genius. I think there's a gene that allows you to do that. I don't possess that. I appreciate that. No, I appreciate very clear. I'm not even going to pretend. I have to go and search. Remember things. <laughs> well, me All too. Right. Me too. I mean, we do. But but I'm saying, but but jump in then. Put it that way. Because no. I love the conversation. Because I know that, um, and everybody knows that, but in this path that we're making by walking, it's very important to me to always not only honor, because that's important, not only acknowledge, because that's important, but to be with your genius. See, this is the thing about our people. We've been kind of socialized to believe that genius is 
a singular thing that's rare when in fact we're human beings yeah so it's it's it, you know in many ways we think about i mean i think about a cat like lebron james he's a lebron james didn't go to college but if you have the ability to understand basketball then you understand that this man is a genius and he his genius is applied to a certain craft but if anybody thinks for a minute that lebron james couldn't have gone to college and never picked up a basketball and wouldn't be doing some remarkable things you're not paying attention and that's for those of us like myself who can watch a game and pick up certain things, but then a, then an expert? In a minute, we're going to talk about John Cheney, and it's going to be like, wow, Temple? I went to Temple. We're going to put Temple in the outside. Temple goes with Bob Costas. Temple goes with, in many ways, Bill Clinton and all them people. Who is John Cheney to, to them, to the social structure? To understand John Cheney, you got to understand Jacksonville, Florida. You got to understand North Philly. You got to understand um, uh, Sayre Junior High School. You got to understand... Um, uh, where Bill Cosby grew up, the Richard Allen Projects. Only thing people know about the Richard Allen Projects now is that if they watch Fat Albert, that's them projects. Fat Albert made a he made a cartoon that up. You got to understand um, the man that hired him to be the second black coach in the Philadelphia Public High School League. The man was named Marcus Foster, Dr. Marcus Foster. People on the West Coast know him because he was killed by the Symbionese Liberation Army, 1973. He was the first black superintendent of schools in Oakland. He was the superintendent of schools in Oakland when Kamala Harris started going to school, elementary and school across the bridge in uh, Berkeley Unified. So, but Marcus Foster before that, he was the black principal of Simon Gratz High School where John Cheney coached for the better part of a decade before he went to Cheney University, the country's first HBCU, where he was the men's coach. And C. Vivian Stringer was the woman's coach. Which is all I'm trying to do right now. We had this conversation. Now, yeah. somebody don't know who C. Vivian Stringer is. Oh. Would you please help us? <laughs> I just, you know, for this, you know, I, I'm I'm a big picture person and you, you understand details yeah. in a way that it just, so, I put perspective, you know, I say perfection is a process, but, oh. but genius is, is a collective, right? And yeah. I think for black people, we have been in a system that has put us in these linear boxes where yes. we, we are, we can do this, this, or this, yes. you know, but really what you're saying about LeBron is his basketball prowess speaks to something else that's going on Yes, that we don't allow in this construct for him to explore. Mm. So he's shut up and dribble. Right. Right. With you, you know, singing, playing an <laughs> instrument, being able to, to spit rhymes, reading, philosophizing. Hmm. It's a it's a collective. And I have my own different sets of skills. I like to sit back in the cut and toss it up to the rim and let somebody dunk it out and then come back and maybe diagram the play. Because which, which, which is a John Cheney thing. Because John Cheney was a was an all-American, small school all-American at Bethune Cookman College. He was a guard. He was known for that for that skill, and he was the coach. But let's get back to that 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 Cicely Tyson cutting her hair piece because okay. I, I don't yes, yes, yes. remember. I watched the master class. I don't remember that that didn't stand out for me. You know, so different yes. things stand out for different people, and that's the other thing in terms of scholarship. You know, and Harriet Michael Harriet alluded to this. He said, you know, when I watch this, there's a, a rabbit hole that I go down. Something you guys bring up, and then I go down that rabbit hole. For everybody listening, there's a different thing that may spark their interest based on who they are right yes. Yes. so you watch that 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 hair thing why did it stick out for you oh oh thank you thank you and this is this is this is important again 
uh, Roland played, uh, Roland covered, uh, there was an award ceremony. There's a school there in Jersey. Oh, that ha- uh, the Cicely Tyson School in East Orange in my hometown. Go Talk ahead. Talk about that, please. No, 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 no. Because I, I saw I, I saw the award ceremony and Oprah was there. Shonda Rhimes was on stage. Susan, Susan Taylor um, is, I think, no she's the, the executive director of it. Yeah, she, she, she came on and talked about that. That's right. But, yeah, but, um, and, and it's in this, you know, new, new. For me, because when I was growing up, it didn't exist. We have a Whitney Houston school, too, uh, in Dodtown. Uh, I'm not going to say anything else about that. But, yeah, the Cicely Tyson School, uh, amazing. you know. And East Orange, as a town, I would love to spend some time in the future and maybe bring on even the executive uh, who is imagining this town. Because it's, it's a tale of two cities in many ways. You know, I grew up in a section of it that was, you know, I would say affluent, for lack of a better word. Uh, but... Across the the bridge, you know, there's a whole other world of folk who are living in a different uh, condition where the school is is on that other side. And it was actually a bridge kind of bringing, you know, all of this amazing art and culture and knowledge to to a to an area of East Orange that didn't really have it. Right. Wow. So, um, you know, it doesn't take but one or two people to change a whole entire trajectory. So, you know, shout out to Susan, Susan Taylor from Essence Magazine, another black facing, you know, the face of Essence for so many years, in many ways, the heart and soul of Essence, and then bringing Cicely Tyson to that, because that was really her vision for that. And I was, Mm -hmm. I've been trying to get in touch with her so she can come on the show to talk about what she did with that. So that's, you know, I'd rather talk with her. I don't want to be the no, 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 no. Hat, right. but I, you know, I just want to, you know, tip my hat to what no, they that, that was. That was good. You know, that's one thing about Rome. I guess Rome must have been burning that phone because she came on for maybe about maybe about five, ten minutes on Thursday talking about that. And I'm just I'm listening with my mouth open like I'm not I'm never surprised. But the all is in the sense of seeing what we do when we are ourselves. The story of that school. That's remarkable. I mean, Miss Tyson talking about, you know, I, would, I didn't want it to be public. And then, you know, I said, I'll be involved, on, you know, on one condition that you let me be involved with these young people. And then they said, well, we were hoping you would say that. I mean, so she's not just lending her name. That's re- and I said, see all those young people standing behind no. her. Mm. And then she went yeah. off into a whole lecture about don't let anybody call you guy. She's talking to the young girls. You're not a guy. You're a young lady. Guys are born as boys. They are boys. She said, I don't mean to get on my soapbox. But then, and then she, but she, like, I mean, I'm like, look at this whole era 90. This is like maybe two years ago or not. Yeah. No, and, and this is the thing, you know, um, a lot of people are shocked because she's been doing interviews. Like there's an interview, I think the last one she did, they, it wasn't with Gail, it was with Kelly and uh, Ryan. Oh, oh, okay. So it wasn't the Gail. Yeah, that wasn't the last, last. It, right. I mean, it was like a couple of days before she died. So oh it's God. like, well, what the heck? She wasn't sick. You know, um, I don't know why she's not here, but that's the fragility of life. And I think, you know, every day we get up when we first greeted one another, it's like, yes, I'm on this side of the earth. We have an opportunity every day we get up with breath in our body, activity in our limbs to do something. And this woman lived to her very last days, lived it, was promoting a book Amazing. to her very last day. And um, just an inspiration on so many levels because it wasn't about the Hollywood thing because she never made a whole lot of money until, no. you know, Tyler and Oprah and them came and made it correct. But you know, just no grinding question. it out, you know, just, no grinding, just working because she loved the craft. No question. 
and taking it back to a 17 year old pregnant, having a baby by herself, kicked out of her house, having to figure it out and then turned to the arts, got molested by the guy that she went to school to try to learn how to act. The man, you know, tried to force her to do something. And she broke down into tears with Gail talking about it for the first time in her 96 years on this earth. She cried, well, I guess minus 20, 70 years, didn't cry about it until she brought it back up and then showed up to class, the next class. Showed up to class. And you and you think about, you know, mm. there was no HR that she could go to, no nobody she could tell, you know, there was no Me Too hashtag. If it was between her and man was his name, M-A-N-N, the, the teacher, who also taught Sidney Poitier and Billy D. Williams and Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. He was, you know, that acting coach for those great actors. She said, I came there to get something and I wasn't going to leave without it. So mm. I wasn't going to let that man get in the way of me getting what I came there to get. And I, ooh, I don't know what that was like to live with that, to, to have to look in his face, knowing what he had done and get what he came there to get. And you realize you never know the whole story. I mean, there's, you know, the uh, the Dogon, and I was introduced to it by one of our great thinkers, uh, Still Walks to Earth, Marimba Ani, uh, who was in Atlanta now for many years, was a hunter, college. Dr. Clark, in fact, got her that job. She was in Black Puerto Rican Studies. Marimba Ani talks about the Dogon having um, divisions. Among others, Dogon people in West Africa, like now the country of Mali, a lot of people, you know, would focus on that country specifically. But, you know, when, when you say the word, they have different distinctions. There's word from the front. So that would be an interview. That would be Cicely Tyson telling Gail or telling, you know, anyone, you know, this story. That's word from the front. You've heard it from the person. There is then word from the side. That's somebody else who was in the space who may have observed something or may not have observed something. So an Ozzy Davis, a Ruby D, a Sidney Poitier. I mean, again, and you know, and I, in fact, let me just in inject this right now because these these actors we see in those movies and television series in the sixties and seventies, those those actors come off the stage when they're black people. They are trained actors. In fact, there's a there's a number of good pieces. The book that came to mind though was a book that. Um, that Paul, uh, Paul Andrew, no, Bert Andrews did. Bert Andrews was a photographer. He began taking photographs of black theater and he had tens of thousands of photographs and negatives. And then there was a fire at his apartment in New York and wiped out uh, a great deal, the vast majority of his photos, but so many other places, the Negro Ensemble Company and you know all, all the, the black repertoire theaters had copies that he was able to reassemble a nice plurality of it. His stuff is at the Schomburg. He's an ancestor now, but they published a book out selections out of those photographs that the Schomburg has caused in, in the shadow of the great white way on black theater. Cicely Tyson wrote the introduction and she's all throughout the book. And so there's word from the side. You look at the, you look at the pictures and I'm gonna come back. This, this actually, this, this story relates to the haircutting story, which we're going to, well, we're going to go refer to this book again in a second. So there's word from there's word from the front. That's the person. There's word from the side. Is somebody else? I noticed something, or maybe somebody was confided, but we'll never know because they took that Ruby D and uh, and, and Cicely Tyson on the other side now. So we, you know, um, there's word from behind. Word from behind is the person who heard the testimony, 
heard the side stuff, convened all the words from the side and then said, hmm, this is what I think based on everything that's been said and everything else I know. And then there's what the Dogon called the clear word. Mm. The clear word is the thing itself. And for the we can almost never know the thing itself. So when you say that, immediately I think to myself, in what faces us now, whether it be her memoir, which is always great to read. I mean, whether it's a book written about them that they participated in or not, like 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 my man Howard Bryant's book on uh on Henry Aaron, The Last Hero, all the stuff Hank didn't put in his stuff, the Henry didn't put in his stuff. You you read that in tandem, right? So I'm sure that somebody's gonna write a huge Cicely Tyson biography, not an autobiography, not a memoir. That'll be a word from the side. But the clear word, we'll never know. We'll never know. Those people are ancestors now. And I bring that up because people would think of the Gayle King interview now. And they're going to play that. They'll play clips perhaps from the Oprah interview, Masterclass. And that's, that's putting Cicely Tyson in conversation with this generation now. I mean, Oprah Winfrey, who graduated from Tennessee State, same as I did. Her acting teacher at Tennessee State was my acting teacher, the great W. Dury Cox, who played a role in the movie Wilma with it because it was shot part of it at Tennessee State, Dury Cox, when the great, see, that's when you're digging in the crates. Now you start talking about Dury Cox, H. Devereaux Brady, uh, Lawrence James, the National Association for Dramatic and Speech Art. See, the black theater community among in HBCUs, uh, Helen Edmonds' father, uh, who was in Florida A&M, I mean, these people are Owen Dodson and Howard. These people were uh, they knew each other like they lived in the same house. And it was that network that produced the people who end up on the stage. I mean, so you see a cat like Roscoe Lee Brown or Brock Peters. I named those two because they were in the movie. Actually, it wasn't even a movie. It was a television show uh, back in the late 50s where Ruby D played Harriet Tubman. That's mm -hmm. before even Cicely Tyson played Harriet Tubman. So when you see Cynthia Erivo, you know, yeah, this is good. Okay, this is the next one. Mm -hmm. When we don't connect the dots, we keep starting over again. So the, the hair story that people may have heard a glimpse of in an interview here, they are, uh, go back to Oprah. I would encourage everybody, particularly if you have access to it in some kind of way, of course, like everything else, Amazon capitalism then found a way to find all these old copies of this show, which is one of the most important shows that black people produced. There's a good sister. You probably know her. I don't know if you've had her on uh, on, on, on your platform, Karen, uh, Melissa Hazlett. I have not. Melissa Hazlett's good sister. Her was it uncle or grand uncle was Ellis Hazlett. Ellis Hazlett the man, producer extraordinaire, born and raised Washington, D.C. He did a, a show. They did a show in WNYC, I think it was. And it got, no, maybe it's WNET. got picked up off of public. It was local uh, television in New York called Soul. S-O-U-L with an exclamation point. This is in the this is in the gestation period that would eventually produce a Gil Noble and all that genealogy that leads to a Karen Hunter. And I mean, you know, but. It was sold here in, in New York. And then, of course, you get Soul Train in Chicago and other show, local community shows. But these shows, Tony, Tony Brown's uh, Black Journal. I mean, this is around the same time. The interview you want to watch is from 1972, the first season of Soul. In fact, there's a very good book called It's Been Beautiful, Soul and Black Power Television. 
Gail Ward published that back in 2015. Gail Ward is the author. Unbelievable. And Melissa finally, I mean, after years of fundraising and getting so she showed uh, the trailer at Howard, did about 30 minute piece. And we had a thing. Howard Dotson at the time was there uh, at the morning spin going. We came together. She we with Dotson, African stage. We came together and, and helped hosted the screener as she's raising money. She finally got it uh, completed a couple of years ago. Look at the documentary, Mr. Soul, which is the history of that television show. Every when, when y'all see that clip on YouTube of uh Nikki Giovanni interviewing James Baldwin, that's from that show. Yes. All that, you know what I'm saying? That famous bit. All that's Ellis Hazlett, this genius, Ellis Hazlett, and the people that surrounded him. The first season of Soul was 1972, October 1972. The show opens up with a musical guest. Oh man, this thing was. I mean, they had everybody, last poets. I mean, every he does an hour interview with Louis Farrakhan in the early 70s, like 73, 74. Ellis Hazlett is an openly gay man having a conversation with Louis Farrakhan on about homosexuality in the black community on live TV. On so, I mean, it's like what? exactly this is what this this is what happens when we don't take the time to sit with our community and ask who we were to each other. We just pick up the bits and pieces that air in a 30 second piece on today's show or we see something come on. Oh, no, you know, they don't know nothing about us. This is who we are to them. Find out who we are to each other. And you feel a lot better about having standards about how we can apply this to today. So the show opens with a brother whose name many people know. We all know Taj Mahal, the great blues artist. Taj Mahal is very young. Why is he opening that show in October 1972? Because Taj Mahal helped write the score for Sounder. Oh my God. And about 20 minutes into the show, Ellis Hazlip says, We want to now welcome to Soul one of the most remarkable actresses. And then he has a long conversation with Cicely Tyson with her hair in them cornrows, that iconic yeah. cornrow looking like a Benin bronze come to life. She's sitting there and <laughs> having a conversation with Ellis Hazlett about Sounder just after Sounder has hit the box offices. And she tells the story, bringing it back to the theater now, she tells the story of how she cut her hair. She says, he, it's crazy. See, it's one thing to see Cicely Tyson at 95 or 96, yes. or like the day, maybe the day before she makes transition. It's another thing to see her in 1972 when Ellis Hazlip says, so tell me, how does it feel to act in this movie? What does it mean to you? And she says, you know, it's been three years, about three years since I've had uh, a chance to do a movie because I just wouldn't do those roles. She says, this allows me to be my full self. I mean, she's walking through, it's nothing to see, this is the year the movie came out and he's showing clips. He shows that clip that makes us cry when she runs to Paul Winfield. She, he shows the, I mean, she's showing the clips where she's with the sharecropper, the white, um, the, the, the guy on the plant, on oh, really plantation. Plantation, yeah. How you gonna owe this money and this kind of thing. And, she, and, and then he pauses and then she walks through the feelings. She tells the story. He's, she's, well, this is, you know how this is. This is the thing I love about black people. People people sit back and they act like it's such a genius thing to say the black community is not a monolith. Not a black community is not a monolith. So Ellis Hazlett is like, oh, and uh, your hair 
is just gorgeous. <laughs> and so you already, you can imagine, y'all got to see the interview. Your hair is just so, it's so beautiful. Tell us about your hair. And then what does it mean for you to wear your natural hair? And then she says, well, and she tells the story of a live television show. There was a TV show, Danny Glover, Roland got in touch with Danny Glover. Danny Glover came on and he started talking about, he remembers Cicely Tyson from a TV show that aired back in the early 60s. And so I went to look at the TV show. I'm, Damn, she was on a television show? And of course, this is like pre-Julia because uh, Wesley Morris pairs, you know, Diane Carroll and uh, Cicely Tyson, which he should in some ways in terms of just that, you know, this is who they are and you're going to come to me. I'm not coming to you. And so you just got to pull it together, right? But there's a show before that show that Danny Glover talked about. This show was called Camera 3. Camera 3 was a live television show that they did that was a that was co-sponsored by SUNY the, the education department of the State University of New York and WCBS it was live television Cicely Tyson was going to play an African woman in the show that was airing the, that night she goes she tells Ellis Hayes of this whole story she goes to the barber she said, I've been wearing my hair straight. And parenthetically, she says later in the interview, you can wear your hair straight. You can wear your hair now. You do whatever you want. He said, but what you should never do is apologize for who you are as a human being. You do what you want. I mean, this is the this is what it means to be black in the world. In other words, don't do what you think somebody else wants you to do. Do what you do and make them, you know. So back to the story. She says, I go in the barbershop. I asked the man, cut my hair very low, natural. And he said, she said, the, the barber, this is a dude, because she's going to do a barbershop. Where's she going to go, right? Black dude. He's like, oh, you sure? Yeah. She, she told Ellis Haley it took him three hours to cut her hair, because he had never <laughs> done it before. You know what I'm saying? Now, he done shaped up uh, 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 countless men, but this sister comes in. She says she goes to work. They're going to do it live. So she goes to makeup, she goes to costume, she's ready. She's, she comes in with her head wrapped. She says she shows up and says, let's go, it's time to go, ready to go. She takes the head wrap off. The director looks at her and says, you cut your hair. She said, yes. And they couldn't fire her because they're getting ready to go on. They're getting ready, no time. You know what the man said? This is what Cicely Tyson said, the man said, the director. He said, I wanted to ask you to do it, but I was afraid. See, this is what happens when you yourself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This man, I, I wanted to ask you to do it, but but I was afraid. In other words, what prevents us is often what we think other people are going to think. You don't know what them people think. Be yourself. Now, you can't get no you can't get black people off TV with their hair natural. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I mean, because obviously they're making profit. But the reason I, I bring that up is because the uh, the production was called Dark of the Moon, 1957. Uh, she says, when we did Dark of the Moon, that was something that led to the TV show that I ended up doing. Right. She said, this is the 1950s. She does, uh, she does chapter three. Then she does theater Dark of the Moon. She's going back and forth between theater and television, not yet film. And Ellis Hazel is asking her which one she likes better. She says, well, they're different. You know, it's not better or worse. One, you get instant gratification. Dark of the Moon, 1957, they produced that at the YMCA in Harlem. 
uh, people have heard us talk about Anna Ar Arnold Hedgeman, who was working at the Y in Harlem for a long time. They did it in the Little Theater. Now, I don't know about you, Karen. I've been to the Little Theater. I went to the Little Theater because that's where John Henry Clark and them used to have their meetings of the Edward Blyden Society, the, the Harlem History Club back in the 30s. Schomburg and all them, uh, Willis Huggins and all them. And I just wanted to stand in the room. And when I got down there in the Harlem Y, right there on 137th Street, you know, I'm asking about the history. You know, I came up. I just, I just want to know. Y'all tell me because I'm, I'm standing. This is where John Henry Clark, they used to put on plays, historical plays. They put on all kind of plays. Come to find out that the little theater, that place she was in, Cicely Tyson was in it. Uh, Ozzie Davis was in it. Roscoe Lee Brown was in it. A dude that many people know, but not from that back, far back. Clarence Williams III oh. was in it. They, all these cats in the movies on television, they were stage actors. That's one reason their, their presence was so important. And so by halfway through, finally, in terms of soul, y'all can look this up for yourselves. So you can find the clips. Uh, the, you can actually find the whole show. About halfway through the interview with Cicely Tyson, Ellis Hazard says, uh, we're going to be joined now with the man who wrote the score for Sounder. Taj Mahal. Then Taj Mahal comes and sits down and they start talking about the cultural importance of sound. It's one thing to talk about it in 2021. It's another thing to talk about it when the movie's in the theaters and, 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 and you begin to see the battle. This is the battle in Hollywood. In fact, that sent me, I knew I had a copy somewhere. This is the Freedom Ways uh, special issue called The Black Image in the Mass Media special issue of Freedom Ways. You can see some of the people who are in there. Eugenia Collier, Ozzie Davis, uh, James Haskins, Sheila Hopkins, John Henry Jones, Ernest Kaiserman, Francis Ward. But they have an article in here. Black Women in Film Symposium. Barbara Smith. Some of you all know Barbara Smith, uh, the uh, the scholar, the intellectual, the culture critic. She's most close, closely affiliated or associated with black feminism. I don't use those labels. I just think of them as thinkers. Some people try to say, well, Audrey Lord or Tony K. Bambara. I'm like, yeah, they're thinkers. I mean, people can grapple with language. I ain't got no problem with grappling with language. I find a language, language in our communities is much more useful when we're thinking about it as who they are to us. I mean, they're there because the other thing is only like when people interrupt our conversations with their opinions. You can do that, too. But if this is a conversation we're having there, I, I don't see people say, oh, well, you know, the women's movement ain't no solidarity between white women and black women. This is our conversation. Now, if you want to have that conversation, we can meet at the third rail. We can meet at the battleground between the social structure and the governance structure. And you bring your people, we'll bring our people, and we can have it out. If you want to sh show me the solidarity right up until the last federal election. And, and yeah, I'm going to show you where it's not. Now, you you know, you find three people and say it is. But if every three you got, I'm going to show you 3,000 that was on the other side. As John Henry Clark says, somehow blood always calls blood and blood always answers. Ask that crazy QAnon chick in Congress that got Cory Bush and them saying, I'm moving my office because she walking down the halls with no mask threatening us. And see, you don't want to threaten Cory Bush, sis, Marjorie. You don't want to do that. Or, or maybe you do. Go ahead. Anyway, uh, let me stop. Let me pause. I can hear Jacob Carruthers. Good speech. So <laughs> good speech. Good speech. Got to be good. The Black Woman in Film Symposium. This is a symposium that they had in uh, in Massachusetts, Boston University. And by the way, UMass, we'll come back to that UMass in a minute. Remember when John Cheney was going to beat the hell out of John Calipari? Yes, I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, oh, I yeah. do. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah. We, 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 obviously, that was a road game. They was at UMass. Marcus Canby and them playing for, for UMass under Slave Master Calipari. Yeah, I said it, Slave Master, Mr. One and Done. I'm going to tell you who John Cheney was. John Cheney was Mr. Anti-One and Done, you pimp. 
still down there at Kentucky, running people through the car wash on your way trying to get a ring, tell them be there for five minutes and you for the family. Go to hell. John Cheney, the reason he had them boys up at 530 in the morning practicing is because that was a tradition he had from back in the day when he was a junior high school coach while he was winning uh, most valuable player in the Eastern League, the professional league he played in after he was All-American at Bethune-Cookman, after he was uh, All-City at uh, Philadelphia, Ben Franklin High School. He'd been doing that some time. He was a young boy, and they trained him. But he was doing it at Cheney for a decade with Vivian Stringer. This is how they would have practice. I forgot where I was before. I'm coming back to that, but I'm just putting this in with John Cheney. Cheney and Stringer would have practices first thing in the morning, and Vivian Stringer, in fact, go get Vivian Stringer's book. Vivian Stringer did her own memoir, the name of it come, that come to me in a minute. But um, in her book, she writes about how Cheney and Stringer. Standing tall. Say again? Standing tall. Standing tall. Yes. Yes. Standing tall. I started to say on a shoestring because that's one thing they used to say each other. Because she left Cheney after playing in the first women's nc2a championship game and the final four was tennessee louisiana tech i forget who the third was and cheney what hbcu yeah little ass hbcu yeah we're gonna beat y'all ass she they lost to la tech in the championship game mm -hmm. you understand but John Cheney in his memoir, he did, he did, he did a memoir, and then his players put together a memoir. Bill Cosby wrote the forward. It's just called Cheney, right? But um, John Cheney writes about how Vivian Stringer has the finest basketball mind of anyone he ever encountered. He said she's the most creative coach I've ever encountered. And he said, he said, black, white, female, male, don't matter. She is the most creative. And so they would switch from day to day coaching the squads that were co-mingled and they prepped the only thing Vivian Strings said the only thing they didn't do together was hard contact scrimmage and they were in that little gym at Cheney and when it was time to split up after they had done everything else together now they're gonna do the hard contact stuff they put up a curtain so that the boys could practice on one side of the court the girls could practice on the other side of the court because they had no resources and Cheney says Vivian Stringer at that time, the women's basketball at Cheney, they didn't lose. And Vivian Stringer writes in her book, she says, yeah, and they told us that we're going to be in the NC2A. We have to just take all comers. So we did. She was going to make the jump. Because before that, you know, anybody care, they didn't care about women's basketball. We're just old enough to remember when it was a half-court game. And they had something. I mean, it's crazy, right? And mm -hmm. so but John, John Cheney said, I remember one time we did a double header against this team. And I forget the name of the team. That name escapes me. But. It was a it was a it was billed as this hype thing. This cut he said the press was there, the stands were packed, the girls would play before the boys. So the women's team would play just before the men's team. Parenthetically, I hate this about HBCUs, including my own. There was a time when women's teams had their own identities, they were not lady anything. So at Tennessee State, the uh, men's team was the Tigers, the women's team was the Tiger Gems. That's why the track team's called the Tiger Bells. That's a you know, tiger sharks. In other words, they, now copying these white schools, it's the lady tigers. What the hell is that? I mean, you know, again, stop following these people. You, you if you understand European culture and Western societies on gender, you wouldn't touch it with a 20-foot pole. But anyway, back to the story. So Cheney says, I'm in the locker room with my boys. Upstairs, the place is packed at Cheney. There's not a seat, the parking lots are full, the media's there, everybody's cheering. And I tell my young brothers, I say, man, you hear all that? They're here for you. 
y'all got to get out there after this game is over and show these people what they came for. So the game ends. He brings his team up. Ain't Everybody left. <laughs> Everybody left. Cheney said, <laughs> Cheney said, what the hell? And Vivian Stringer writes about it in her book. She says, since John Cheney has told this story a million times, I feel comfortable telling it. Because, yeah, that's what happened. They came to Cheney to see Vivian Stringer's teams. And right. then 1982, John Cheney wins the small, the NAIA championship there. So understand, oh, I know Temple. And of course, late then she goes to Iowa. And then remember this, remember this, uh, Karen, when that fool who was the president of Rutgers made them crazy yep. comments about, you know, was it 94 or something? That's the year after that. That's when they hired Vivian Stringer. Right. And then Don Imus referred to them as nappy-headed hoes. And which is the only thing many people in the papers will know. Whenever, a hundred mm -hmm. years from now, Vivian Stringer joins the ancestors, the, yeah. the, the, the obituary is going to make sure they put in that clown's comment. Right. Nappy-headed hoes. But I bet you a dollar to a million that all those obituaries, many of them, perhaps even most of them in the white press, will never mention the fact that for a decade, Vivian Stringer and John Cheney were the coaches at championship level Cheney right. University of Pennsylvania. It's very important to understand. So, I, uh, so, so anyway, I said I'd say when you see Cicely Tyson talking to Ellis Hazlett in 1972, one of the topics that comes up is the importance of controlling our images and the importance of having institutions that can do it. Sounders important in part because it's Hollywood. Why is that important? Because black independent filmmakers really don't exist. They do exist, but they but they're on the margins. And black theater is fighting. This is August Wilson's thing. We got to have independent black theater. We got to have black community theater. And so when we get to and so like Cheney, and if you read again, read Vivian Stringer, read John Cheney, and what you see is, man, Vivian Stringer talks about the fact that. You know, during winter break, little HBCU, they turn off the heat to save money. They lock up the cafeteria. They don't have a van to go to away games. So they have to commandeer one of the buses on campus that the, that the girls call the prison bus because one of the places they went to practice was a reform school in southwest Pennsylvania. And, 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 and you see, I'm cheap. So in the years I lived in Philly and came to D.C. in December, I couldn't afford the train pass. Couldn't really afford the other time, but I couldn't buy a train pass to come down for two weeks to give exams. And come back. So I would drive my little car, but I'm cheap. I don't like paying them tolls. It just feel like highway robbery on 95. So I would take Route 1 literally from Baltimore <laughs> Avenue in Philadelphia all the way to D.C. <laughs> There's a way to do it, right? So you always pass Lincoln and Cheney. You know what I'm saying? Crescott King's sister was on the faculty at Cheney for many years. But at any rate, uh, so when Vivian Stringer tells the story about being in this green campus bus with bad brakes careening down Route 1 to go to practice with one of her girls' head come out the window when they get up to the train tracks to see if she could hear a, 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 a whistle. And when she said no whistle, she would gun it to get across because the brakes weren't bad and couldn't be guaranteed that she could stop. <laughs> I'm saying, wow. And then she said, John Chaney and I would cook for the men's and women's basketball teams on two hot plates in a concession stand. And when we had a game, we would pop the popcorn. She said, one time I made some eggs that were green. I don't even know what I mixed on some aluminum plate or something. And the girls was hungry. They ate them eggs. And I was, I'm thinking, <laughs> this is before some backwater miscreant named Don Imus with his white nationalist, you know, radio network in the vein of uh, 
everybody from Rush Limbaugh. To, I mean, this is this is how they built this foolishness that sent these people into the Capitol. This stuff that people take as, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's all fun and games to somebody decide to put a gun in somebody's face. But at any rate, nappy-headed hoes. You know what you just did? You made yourself famous for being an ass. Why? Because who you talking about? You're not even qualified to open your mouth and take a breath God gave you and project out of your mouth over your vocal cords one word about Vivian Stringer or any of them girls because when when Vivian Stringer has always made it her business to make sure that not only the well-being of her of her students on the court but off the court is yes. the valuable thing. Yes. And John, and John Cheney, Cheney, you talk to any of them. See, when I was you know you know who was a a, a tutor for the, 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 the basketball uh, players, girls and boys, women and men, was Ajua. Ajua was in, that's why, that's why I first met Ajua. She was a freshman at Temple. She was a, she was a tutor. <laughs> she was a tutor. For, so she know John Chaney well. John Chaney's thing was up at 530, we're finished, then you go to class, and I'm coming around to check on y'all. So I was in, I was in grad school when he had Eddie Jones, when he had Aaron McKee, who's now the coach, at Temple, um, all them boys were there, and there was this one young brother named William Cunningham. Everybody called him Six. He was just maybe a half inch shy, seven feet tall. Quiet. You couldn't get quiet, man. And in fact, the the problem was this is a guy you recruit, and John Cheney always made it his business. He said, "I'm not. I don't want the diva recruits." But as close as he ever got was Mark Macon. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want those cats that need a break. He says most of my young men come from households where the father isn't there all the time or isn't there at all he said, that ain't the point what they need is a chance and some structure and when i tell you those young men graduated and i think about william cunningham i had him in class six would turn in a paper you look at the paper and be like this boy in the wrong craft you need to be a poet in fact he was a poet i'm gonna tell you who was blown away by his poetry and said, this young man right here has as much or more promise than any student ever taught. That's my dear friend and good sister, the great elder Sonia Sanchez, who was on faculty in the English department at Temple. Mm. His poetry was unbelievable. See, John Cheney's like, you playing basketball? We're going to do this. But let me be very clear. You're here because I'm interested in your manhood. So see, when John Calipari comes snaking his behind up and John Cheney came up that aisle, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And you see, when you see the clip, you see John Calipari pointing his finger and then do like this. Oh, oh, you want to buck? Knock if you buck. I'll kill this North Philly right here. John Chaney's coming up to, now he's in, he's in, he's in Amherst. Dude, you're not even at home. But <laughs> you know John Chaney, John Chaney coming up to, ah, oh, we can handle, here come the white sports writers. Y'all separate them. John Chaney, near the end of his life, near now, gave an interview a couple years ago. He said, I made one mistake. He said, I apologize. We later became friends. We raised money on stuff like that. He said, but I made one mistake. I shouldn't have said nothing. I should have waited for him after <laughs> and beat his ass. <laughs> See, that's what I'm talking See, <laughs> that's your friend. Yes, we're all friends. We raised money together. Ha, ha, ha. That's the social structure. When UMass came for the, the second game, because in in, it's Atlantic 10, they played each other. John Calipari had to have police escort. Why? You in North Philly now, bro. Let me be right here. This man right here, he's a coach, but he's not a coach. He's a coach the way Henry Aaron was a baseball player. You, you a pimp. You got these boys out here on the, you're trying to win championships. If they graduate, fine. If not, fine. But you told, you told that boy's mama that if he, you, if he signed with you, you'll get to the league. See, we know what you about. This man right here, 
his play, John, John Cheney's players would have died for him, including, and I'll, I'll end with this. Okay. Um, a sister who is, you know, my heart to this day. She came as a freshman to Temple. She played women's basketball, two guard from Jacksonville, Florida, named Claudrina Harold. Claudrina is from where John Cheney is from. He's from Jacksonville. Claudrina came to Temple. She was all Atlantic 10. She's in the Big Five Hall of Fame. She's a great two guard at Temple. We used to go to women's basketball games. We would go to the women's games. And so after her third year, she had done all her credit. She had done all her work, top scholar. She gave the last year of her athletic scholarship back to Temple and said, I'm going to go off and get a PhD. She got a PhD in history at Notre Dame. She's now the chair of the history department at the University of Virginia, one of the best scholars there is. And if you want to ask about who John Cheney is, you can ask all his men players, but you also ask the women. Ask Claudrina, and you ask everybody else. It's very important. But anyway, go. And, no, I was just, you know, uh, as we sew up everything, because yes. You know, for some people, it this is kinetic, frenetic. It's all over the place, but it's really not. There's one thread, and it's and it's our humanity. Yes. You know, we started off the conversation talking a little bit about um, Cicely Tyson, and you brought in Wilma Leon. Well, excuse me, Wilma Leon. Shout out to him. Shout out to him, Wilma Rudolph. Yes. Um, and you know, we were talking about both of them having babies out of wedlock, and what that means to our, you know, I guess our religion. You yeah. know, is it our religion? Is that so? Oh, I got, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to make a little segue, and I hear an echo, but I'll ignore it. I got a uh, DM from somebody um, who's also an artist, and you might know her from the group Jeanette. Oh yeah, yeah. Because she had a question about religion, and I was like, this could be a nice way because many of us are raised in the church to believe a certain thing about who we are. And when I think about Cicely Tyson at 17, having a baby and, yes. and she was a pariah, got kicked out of her family and we we demonize folk. Mm. What is that African? And what does that mean to us in terms of moving forward in our spirituality? Because mm -hmm. we're still spiritual, Yes. but how? So I wanted her to ask her question. Please, or, yeah, please. You know, we're gonna do Q and A afterwards, but I wanted to bring her in. Let me bring in Miss Jean Baylor, one half of Jeanne, because I it's a that's right. It's a groove thing, you know, it's a funky the thing. Famous, no question. How are you? Groove thing, a groove thing, you know, because hey, Mr. DJ, you yes. can get it started. You know, you can get it started, you know. Hi, Gene. Hey, I'm, I'm, fan, I'm fanboying over here. I hope you don't mind. How are you? <laughs> Gene, you got to unmute yourself so we can hear you. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, there we go. Hey, said over your shoulder. That's some of that hardware. I see. I see it. <laughs> Amen. Oh, is that a Grammy? I'm sorry. Didn't you just win no, a? Did, did you get a Grammy? Won a Grammy yet. I'm in my own uh, studio, so you okay. can see a little. Um, that's your yes. Yeah, Mark. Jazz. Yes. Okay. I can't okay. First of all, first of all, first of all, I have to say this is an unbelievable honor for me. Listen, when Karen Me said, come out, I was like, no, 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 I don't want to. No, seriously, yeah. Question. But I have been loving these Saturday sessions oh. with y'all. I mean, the amount of brilliance that is coming over the internet, as we say, <laughs> is, is just... It's just unparalleled. I love it. And I just be listening. I'm painting my bathroom last week and listening to it. And that, and let me tell you, my husband, he didn't want to come down, but he was just amening you so hard oh. on stuff with basketball because Coach Chin, because I went to Temple. And I was there when EJ, Eddie Jones was there and Dwayne. Yes, we were there the same time. Are you serious? Yes, because uh, them boys, we, we, talk, we talking about the 90s. 
That's what remember when Kobe Bryant was a young boy. He was over there serving him in the summertime. He would come down from Lower Marion. He's like, this is high this is high school kid. That's what it wasn't no Leah Corps Center. We were over McGonagall Hall. Right, no McGonagall question. Hall. It was no action. question. Bill up on the thing because I played lacrosse. For, oh, of course. I was recruited for field hockey, but I ended up playing lacrosse under Coach right. Tina Sloan Green, who was like instilling extreme passion about bridging the gap between black kids and lacrosse. Because where I grew up in South Jersey in a very white town, but on the black side, we had sports like field hockey, lacrosse, and golf and all that. But when you go to Philly, kids was like, what is that that you carry? What is that? You know, Can you please turn- help us all understand the fact that there are black women and men that play lacrosse. Yes, yes. yes. And it's usually Jersey or even Baltimore. Like my kids from Baltimore, they say we play. People don't even know y'all exist. They're like, what is that? Connecticut, Long Island, you have people. But we were definitely in the minority. Like, so on our team at the time, we had the most black players at one time. And it happened to be one family of sisters. Um, the Thorntons that were out of, um, I forget the township, right out about an hour outside of Philly. But you know what? Um, you make me really think that. Were you in school with uh, with um, Kobe's sister play volleyball? I don't ten- know because I let me see, I was I started the fall of '88 and then I okay, so that's just before okay, yeah. Because you so we overlapped by I came in '92, so we overlapped okay. just barely, wow. yeah. Because when, yeah, when I came, yeah. uh, the young people were coming in. It's like uh, Gerald Gerald Rawls. Everybody call him Benny Boom now. The the film red, he, Benny was. At, see, I knew him as Benny Boom. I didn't know that was his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was an alpha man. You know, everybody had a different name. But I mean, yes. but this this people don't understand. In fact, it's so funny because I went to HBCU, but when I got to Temple, that's when I realized. The people outside that orbit, many black people thought Temple was an HBCU because <laughs> how many yeah, black oh, people yeah. went to Temple? Oh, well, you come on campus and you're like, is this an HBCU? I'm like, far from it. But there were so many black folks on campus. No question. I was, yeah, so it, it was a lot going on. It, it was an amazing time. And so I was correcting them. I'm like, I knew them players. They were I put, Aaron McKee, his nickname was Blue. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> North Philly, no question. Yes. It's great. People need to understand too. Please help help us too. I know we. I mean, we're gonna talk about other things too. But I mean, oh, yeah. when you mentioned the name Tina Sloan Green, that is so important. Many people don't know. Could you say a little bit more about her? I mean, what a phenomenal. Uh, she is amazing. So again, I I was recruited for field hockey, but I enjoyed lacrosse more, and so I wanted to play that. And the, the field hockey coach was like, "Well, you need to go see." So I was like, "All right." And so she was familiar because she was also in the recruiting process of checking out players from different high schools in the area. And the high school I went to, we were always in the national championship. Well, yeah, it was called national championship for high school, the final four. Yeah. Um, and wow. Yeah. So, we, and I wasn't even like the best player on the team. I was good, but I wasn't the best player. Um, but we had so many great players, but I, I met with her and she was like, yeah, let's go. And Tina Sloan Green was amazing because, um, she was very intentional about her recruiting efforts to bridge the gap between black students, black athletes and lacrosse. Um, She was, she wasn't like hard, 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 but she was very, um, 
she was interested in us as individuals. Just like when you talk about all the teachers and the coaches, like Cheney and um, yes. the fellow from George, Georgetown. I don't know all the names. Well, no, <laughs> John Thompson. In fact, his new biography, um, I Came as a Shadow, the brother who go, who helped him with the writing says, it was John Thompson talking about Don, uh, John Cheney that led him to study John Cheney. And of course, at Temple, uh, what's the brother's name? Uh, the basketball legend in Philadelphia, Sonny. Uh, mm -mm -mm, it'll come to me in a minute. Sonny Greer. Anyway, Peter Leochorus was looking for a basketball coach. He asked Sonny Greer, you know, who Greer was like, get John Cheney. Because mm. he, of course, had seen John Thompson at Georgetown. It was 1982. And so the, it came full circle because John Thompson looked at John Cheney like, hey, man, you the man. And it was because of what Thompson was doing following Cheney that got Cheney the job at Temple. Because the guy, the president of Temple, who, of course, we know, Peter Lee, of course, was, had seen anyway. So, yeah, all, right. that, that whole group, not to even talk all about right. the women's group, but, but anyway, but, all but right. we had to get Tina Sloan. I want to watch the time. I want to yeah. watch the time too. Because y'all can do this. Sorry, sorry. Literally. Okay. Thank you, Green. Sunny Hill. Not Sunny Greer. Sunny Hill. But 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 as mentioned, wanted to mention Dr. Green because not only a force in athletics, but an educator, a teacher, an academic, a scholar. Because I mean, wasn't she fencing? I mean, that was one of her things too, wasn't it? Like she yeah. yeah. <laughs> She was amazing. She was an amazing coach. She really yeah. was. And just the, the advocacy, you always knew that you had somebody that was in your corner, not just because you may bring value to the team, but because you were there. She wanted you, She has a whole organization now um, called, I think, Women in Sports or Black Women, Women in Sports. Sports. Black Women in Sports. Yes, yes, yes. And I participated in one of the things where she brings kids from all over in different areas to come. Like I remember the one, the year I participated, there were some students from Newark and I was just like, what is this? And I'm like, come on, let's get it. Did it you know, cause it's, it's just the entryway into, my parents couldn't afford to just pay for college. You know, they were gonna figure it out cause they were of that generation that by any means necessary, you gonna go to school. But, you know, change your whole life though. Change your whole life. Oh yeah. Just, yeah. A, ch just a child coming down seeing you. How, how many went to college cause they saw you? Just because they saw you, you'll never know. She <laughs> you know did a five-year program where she was like, just in case you need additional time for your studies to complete your degree, I'm going to build in a five-year um, degree where you can use that. And it worked for me because I didn't pick my major until the third year. And so I used the last six semesters to do eight semesters worth of Ooh. work academically. And I got Listen, we could be here all night long. Yeah, we could, we could, we could, and, and we connected now, so we definitely go ahead. What, what was on your mind? Since when you... Okay, <laughs> okay. So I don't know how I mean got for questions, um, because I got a mm, interesting question about uh, jazz, because that's what actually what my husband and I both went to school of for. Of course, and that's a group called the Baylor Project that is jazz. But anyway, I'm going to start with the question that I uh, hit up Karen about. Um, I, I just, a friend of mine sent me this. Um, documented this film that was uh, that was posted on YouTube. It's not there now, but it is on a website offered for sale. It's called the 1804 movie, The Hidden Truth oh, yes. of the Haitian Revolution, right? Yes. So, I, and I told Ken, I was like, I was a horrible history student because all we knew was black people were slaves and, and white people were slaves. Like, so I, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have too many people at, at, at history at Temple even. Wilbur <laughs> Jenkins, my man, he did. And, and Betty Collier Thomas, who's a fantastic historian, but she don't teach Caribbean history or world history, so yeah. So I'm. This is all elevating, igniting a, a, a profound interest in history for me. So I'm going back and just trying to start from the beginning, from you know before the Mayflower. I'm like, all right, let me get the basic. Now, let me no question. Let me, you know. <laughs> so I've got a lot of catching up to do. But 
Um, when I watched this film, there was mm. a section in particular that tripped me out because um, first the title, The Hidden Truth or The Hidden Revolution tells you that whatever was taught was not the real thing, no surprise there. But they were talking about the planning process and the organization process of when the Haitians would go and have uh, private meetings and they would meet by the swamps mm -hmm. because there was all these alligators there and the Europeans didn't go there. Nobody else went there, but then because the alligators, you just, you would be done. So I'm sitting there watching and so they're like, well, they went there and they did their things, their spiritual things. They had their meetings. They talked about their strategy of how they were going to actually carry this out. But they went to the swamps because they had some kind of connection with spirituality and nature where oh, the yeah. alligators did not kill them. So How I'm about like, that? All right. <laughs> so I said, yes. What is that? Six months ago, I watched that. And I'm like, what is that? Because I will call, I will pay $100 for an exterminator right now for household spiders. So I know that <laughs> what's the connection that the things that we lost in African spirituality mm. as like I grew up in church, my husband grew up in church, both the fathers were pastors. So there's that oh, whole thing. Yeah, but yeah. it's like, what, what are some of the, uh, there's a lot of things I believe we kept, which is why you go have a certain experience in a black church. No question. Right, and you just ain't gonna have that experience? It's no question. But those things that we lost as well, it's like, mm. what's the connection of spirituality and nature where you are confident of showing up in a swamp with a bunch of alligators? You're like, oh, they good, they good. How about that? And, that so thank you. No, no, can you hear me? I hope you can hear me. Yeah, All right, I just wanted to thank yeah. you because I thought it would be a great entry point as we start to honor these ancestors because even the process of honoring ancestors we do it in a Eurocentric, Euro-facing manner. Yes. Sometimes, you know. Yeah. And, you know, but what is the real thing that we used to do to honor our ancestors, and what does it mean to cross over into the next place? So I thought, you know, as we talk about Cicely Tyson, I, I thought Jean Jean's question was so poignant because I thought it yeah. connected all of the dots for us. So I want to thank you and tell tell the Bella Project. Aren't y'all nominated for a Grammy? Come on we now. A few Grammys. Third Grammy. Big uh, up now. Thank you, thank you, thank yes. you. We're in between with jazz, but this one's for R&B song that we just happened to do earlier. This up. Uh, come in and say hi, man. Come on. Yeah, please. Hey, What's up, man? What's going on? <laughs> I'm going to send you both a copy of our next record because it's called Generations. And it Stop is so playing. steeped in... It is. It just came. Like, let me. Can I just tell this? Just, just sixty okay. seconds. Yes. Okay. Don't need to ask no question. She's giving the answer. This is the answer right here. Please go ahead. What's going on? Well, come on. Anyway, it's about uh, two years ago, right? And we had got nominated for uh, two Grammys in our first album, The Journey. And um, yes. we were yes. at our manager's house at the time, right? And it was just a collective black experience, right? We're talking there and the elders of ours. And so we had uh, two couples there, elders, different generations. And we're sitting around the table talking. And the older ones are talking about how when they grew up, they had a, a refrigerator with a meter on top that if or that if you didn't put enough quarters in the meter, that the meter <laughs> man would come. And we were like, what are you talking about? Why wasn't it plugged into the wall? So they're telling us all this stuff. We're cracking up over breakfast. We have biscuits and everything. <laughs> and, oh, I got the concept for the next album. It's going to be Generations. And Marcus My was God. like, what does that mean? I said, I don't know, but we're going to figure it out. And as time went on, <laughs> these things will come. And it's just like that is unbelievable biology of, you know, steeped in black culture. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. And I wanted Marcus to say hi. Yes, <laughs> such a pleasure. And man, it's such an honor listening to your show. No, the, so honor, the honor is mine. 
and I, we're we're sports people, so now we've connected. And uh, yes, and, and thank you all. And we just feel blessed. We're nominated this year for best traditional R&B performance for a song that was literally started as a joke, which went as a uh, viral campaign, and and the rest is history. It wasn't even supposed to be a song, and so here it is. And we're now, see that's that's genius. Yeah, that's that yeah. that that's 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 genius right there. See, Karen, that, that, that see that genius. I, I, I love them. I love them. I love them. Well, I'm that's right. Observe the excellence in that. That's what right. we talk about right there. Thank you, wow. thank you guys. So I'm gonna stop out and and uh, Prof. Dr. Carr, you gonna answer? You gonna answer? Yeah, yeah. We gonna have a good bit of conversation. Yeah, just but thank you. Oh man, I am so very quickly. I mean, to me, and again, just just as a point of order in our conversations. As everybody sees, every time somebody comes into the circle, and don't be shy and coming in the circle. Can I ran to a sister uh, from Seattle? Actually, uh, I went down to see Highly. I, I rarely leave the house, but I went down there, and this uh, sister uh, named Racine. She said, "Oh, I would, I would come in and ask a question, but I'm shy. No, no, no. Come on in. Come on in. Ask questions because because they're really not questions. As you see, we're having conversations. So, Jean, when you bring that up, first of all, that 1804 documentary, I think it's uh. Tariq Nasheed and them same cats that made Hidden Colors, one, two, three, four, however many of them there are now. Um, I think those, those kind of documentaries I, I, I kind of think of as points of entry. In other words, as you say, they pick our interest to then go out and do our own research and to go past the, the film into the text, right? And, and of course, in a film like that, I mean, you know, my friend's James Small, of course, from South Carolina, longtime New Yorker, now Harlemite, was one of, you know, uh, New Malcolm you know, was a member of the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. And, you know, a lot of those commentators in, in those films in particular, you know, folks I know, you know, so, so they, they, you have, you have a point of entry. Now on the question of spirituality and the Haitian revolution, of course, I'm not a, a scholar of Haiti. I have a, a ton of books, the ones that are in English, but most of the stuff is not in English. It's either in Creole or it's in French if it's written. But most of the stuff is not written. It's mouth to ear. I think about one of my former students who's actually coming to Howard, uh, uh, joining the history department faculty, Natalie Pierre, uh, who is Haitian herself, raised in Brooklyn, a brilliant scholar who did her dissertation actually on statecraft and the creation of the, the Haitian state, uh, who is very clear about uh, the role of Vodun, the role of African culture and African spirituality in the Haitian revolution, and who schools us all on it all the time, uh, in addition to having a couple of machetes at the crib. I mean, that's how she rolls. So, so really, the question of spirituality uh, you know, they, the argument is that there wouldn't have been a Haitian revolution if it not for the spiritual traditions of African people that that blended on that third of the island that was known as Hispaniola. Um, so we're talking about the Fon, the Dahomey, the Yoruba people, sprinkling the Congo people, the blending that creates the Rada and the Petro, the, 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 the so-called hot and cool sides of Vodun, the ability to tap into the question of spiritual forces the things you can't see that animate the things you can uh there's a there's a small documentary done by the good brother Digimon Honsu Honsu uh he says translates he's from Benin uh one who was born in the voodoo shrine voodoo is really a, a kind of new extension of African spiritual traditions that comes from very old traditions in Dahomey among the phone in what is now known as Benin and surrounding countries because those lines are imaginary and 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 they and it's anchored in the principle that most of what exists we cannot see. 
but it animates that which we can see. And so the ability to be in tune with those forces is the thing that allows us to be able to know how to deal with the thing we can see. So the idea, for example, that an animal may not attack, people say, that's sorcery, that's magic. And Africans would say, no, that's awareness. We know what is and what isn't. And we know we don't know everything, but we know more than you know, because you separate between the material and the spiritual so rigidly that you can't understand it. Even when you give yourself a system that will allow you to conjure into the unseen. What do I mean by that? When you blend all that stuff together and you're on the island, you outnumber the whites in vast majority. They're constantly worried about a rebellion. So they want one of the things that one of the reasons why they try to Christianize black people is to create a, a kind of more docile group. Well, it didn't work. And so, but in the Spanish Caribbean and the French Caribbean, you see Catholicism. So what did these Africans do? The, 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 the spiritual tradition they created in Vaudun, they then took the Catholic saints that these Europeans tried to give them and just hid their Loa, as they might call them, Orisha, as the Yoruba might call them, Necher, as the uh, ancient Egyptians would call them. In fact, when you look at the ancient Egyptian hieroglyph, their word for divine or God is a picture of a staff with a flag but the flag is out like this it isn't drooping so what that what that um what that symbol represents according to the egyptologists i trust in terms of students of the egyptian language none more important than theophilo benga who's still alive in congo and his greatest american apprentice the master teacher mario hollis Beatty, who's at howard university they would argue that when you see that flag like that that egyptian symbol for god or for deity or for the creator is not a symbol don't be looking at the flag and the stick. The thing they're communicating to you is what that thing is that's allowing that flag to go like that, the air, that's the thing you cannot see. That's the that's the source. And that is really what they're trying to communicate. So whether it be Netcher, if it's the Egyptians, whether it be uh, the Orisha for, for example, uh, the Yoruba people, or whether it be the Loa for the people who have blended those different traditions into Vodun and Haiti and places like that, they then took those uh, Loa and took them and, and stuck them, Iruzi, Dambala, all these different names for God and, and manifestations of God. They then stuck them under the Catholic saints, St. Catherine, St. Patrick. So you see Dambala, for example, Dambala, you say, okay, Dambala can control those snakes. So where do you hide Dambala? Which one of them Catholics he talking about drove? Which one? Of, what's that Catholic saint y'all pray to that drove the snakes out of Ireland? What's his name? Okay, that's St. Patrick. So the Europeans think, oh, they're worshiping St. Patrick. Fool, we're giving ourselves permission to control nature the way you want. Now, you didn't name the thing, but you just saying, I'm going to pray to him and it's going to say, we in, we in touch with it. We don't look at our loa as being so far from us. That we got to pray to them. So we don't have to wear the medals you wear around your neck. We ain't got to kiss and then light the candle. No, we'll just keep going in a circle with the right drum. And those loas will enter us and we will become them. So for those of you who've ever been to a church and watch black people get happy, that's the same principle, except the sophisticated African spiritual traditions we created allowed us to name those forces as well. And so perhaps finally, and it's part of the answer. Perhaps the most famous ritual at the onset of the Haitian revolution, this is early on. So you're talking about Macandal, you're talking about, you know, early on, really the late 18th century. Before you get to the 19th century, Haitian Revolution, they say history books, oh, it's 1801 uh, to 1804, 1791 to 1804. Yeah, you got to go before that. When you go back almost a century before that, they have a ritual at a place that I'm going to butcher the name, but I'll spell it for you. B-O-I-S. 
C-A-I-M-A-N, two words, voice command, or, you know, you need somebody who's Haitian who speaks Creole to give it to you, right? But there's a sister there, a mambo, a priestess of Vodun, who helps initiate that ceremony. And there's a famous speech that is given at that time by a dude named uh, Duddy Bookman. And Duddy Bookman gives a speech, and, and this is, again, this is a this is an English gloss of the speech. And I first came in contact with it almost 30 years ago, encountering the great Jacob Hudson Carruthers, who wrote a book called The Irritated Genie. Get your hands on The Irritated Genie. He starts with the spirit of the Haitian Revolution, and he says, at that time, Bookman gives the speech. It's called Bookman's Prayer. Ask the, if you Haitian, you know it. If somebody Haitian, ask them. They, nine times out of ten, they probably know the speech. They certainly know uh, of Bookman. In fact, there was a famous uh, band called Bookman Express. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. Bookman gives a speech, and he says, cast down the image of the white man's God who has brought down your tears for so long and listen to liberty that lives in all our hearts. That's when they just set off the Haitian Revolution. Because see, this is the thing about Vodun. You can't build no bridge to Western ways of knowing with a way of knowing that is so African that the Europeans are terrified of it. So what do they do? They can't stop them. So then they try to demonize the spiritual traditions. So probably everybody in this room has been told, you know, mess with that voodoo. Yeah, but you wouldn't be scared of it if you didn't believe it. Negroes won't split poles. You got people who won't eat everybody's red sauce. You go get your hair done, say, sweep up that hair and give it to me. I got to burn it or flush it down the toilet. What's that? That's superstition. Nah, it's recognition that there are forces beyond the forces you can see. And it's okay. It is really okay to embrace those forces. Don't be scared. Because if any of y'all usher like I did, when people start getting happy, you ain't scared of that. You know the difference between that and Vodun spirit possession? Some names and a couple of socialization. But the thing they couldn't beat out of us, that's the thing that keeps us going. That's what the civil rights movement was based on, spiritual traditions. We are soldiers in the army. We got to fight. Sometimes we have to cry. We have to hold up the bloodstained banner. We got to hold it up until we die. They just gloss we are soldiers in the army, which they also glossed in HBCU marching bands. We got to march until we have. In other words, it's the notion of doing something as one entity. Individuals can have success, but when you are one entity and you're tapped into that spiritual force, hell, I be, I'm not surprised that an alligator would lay down. Because some of y'all been in some of them rituals where you saw some things. And as uh, Nation of Islam used to say, those that say don't know and those that know don't say. So I'm going to leave it at that because even though this is intimate space. It's yeah. all <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> leave it at that. Because I know I've seen some stuff. I'm sure you had too. Yeah. And 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 again, we we know, we believe, we know what we know. Ooh. And yet at the same time, we don't use that force to do the things we need to do. Well, until, right, we don't give ourselves full permission. And Jean, I see she put in the chat, mind the Daniels in, in the lines then. That's important. If you read Michael Gomez's book, Exchanging Our Country Marks, he goes by different national groups, chapter by chapter. And when he starts talking about the Igbo, and he starts talking about how Africans began to embrace Christianity in places like South Carolina, he says one of the reasons they would embrace Christianity, they wouldn't embrace Christianity by going to the European interpretation. They would embrace Christianity by taking the pieces of that Europe narrated and bringing it to them. So they would say, Jesus Christ. Ah, wait a minute. Hold on. He died and come back to life. OK, we do that. Yeah. We had control over the spirit. Yeah, we can. OK. So they started bringing it into themselves. And when you mentioned Daniel in the lines, then, you know, black, black folk be Old Testament people. The politics in the Old Testament 
is one of the things that attracted black people in those spiritual traditions. Daniel unharmed in the lion's den. Why? He's protected by the force, by the creator outside. And you know, the Negroes love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They in the fiery furnace. They put them in the furnace. It was three. They opened it up. It was four. And one looked like the son of God. In other words, black people said, okay, yeah, we can we can get with that. See, y'all the ones that got Frankenstein and Dracula and the, and the, and the, um, and the wolf man. And all. y'all scared as hell of old folks. You scared of dead people. You don't go to the graveyard. We go to the graveyard. Because most human beings go to where their ancestors are buried. That's why people love Coco, that Disney movie, so much. Yeah, those people, see those people there, those Native Americans, those First First Nations people you call Mexicans, those people understand your people are with you. Y'all understand it too, but for the rest of the world, because you got all international cemetery, you got, uh, uh, you you got, um, oh, forget the name of the place in, in London where all their people are buried, but it, it'll come to me in a minute. But for other people, you want to act like they somehow are aliens. That is intellectual warfare because you have to reduce those people's humanity in order to convince yourself that you're supposed to rule over them. The Africans wouldn't take it. And so and so, Karen, I think. When we are comfortable. Tapping into our cultural foundations for political purposes, we've seen the world change. All anybody has to do is watch any of those civil rights documentaries and you see them black people, you see those old ladies, you see those children singing and getting that pitch, go go talk to our dear sister, uh, Bernice Johnson Reagan out of Albany, Georgia, Sweet Honey in the Rock, which came out of the Harambe singers, which came out of the SNCC singers. Go listen to those sisters and brothers talk about how they tapped into the spirit. See, when we, you can use your spirituality as a weapon. I, I'll leave it at the Haitian Revolution is probably the best example of that, which is why Jacob Carruthers talks about it. And I think we are scared. Okay, we, we're scared in a sense because and I want to just mention one other thing in terms of um, in terms of Cicely Tyson to tie off a little bit of a loop. When we do not act collectively, we rob ourselves individually of access to that collective power. When I mentioned the Freedom Ways piece, for example, in 1974, the uh, Readers Forum Black Women in Film Symposium that Barbara Smith writes about, there were four women invited to this conversation, four actresses, Susan Baston. Cynthia Belgrave, Ruby D, a five actually, Ruby D, of course, Bea Richards, and Cicely Tyson. Cicely Tyson is in here talking about the fact that when they offer black women roles at all, and there aren't many roles, obviously, in white facing media at the time, and even the ones in black, so called black, what they call black exploitation media, it's a whole conversation. Uh, um, um, Mario Van Peebles was on with Roland the other night talking about, you know, Sweet Sweet back in 71 and trying to get stuff done independently and how Hollywood doesn't develop the black characters and why Cicely Tyson's choices were so important. But Cicely Tyson here writes and talks about the idea of how, uh, and she says this in the Ellis Hazett um, interview too. She said, I took a role in Sounder that allowed me to appear on the screen as a human being rather than as a black doll or sex symbol or an addict, all the things we've been forced to deal with in the past few years. Now, what does that have to do with Vodun? Let me tie this together. In this series of interviews, they talk about the fact that when, see, Western society in its patriarchy has a fascination with sex that's about objectification. And when it comes to women, they objectify with this hypersexuality. So when you see a black woman who they cast in these, in these movies, their sex symbols or their objects of desire, this kind of thing. And in fact, 
what they say, what these sisters say in this conversation is when you see a black woman appear who is not one of those things, it's the equivalent of being a female impersonator. Because female does not mean, woman rather, does not mean black. So we see a black woman not being one of those things. They don't know what to do with her. Are you impersonating a woman? And we need to see some skin or we need to see somebody, you punch somebody in the face or cuss somebody out. We need to see you cackling all the time and laughing. And so when I see 2021 pop culture, Hollywood pop culture, it's like, are we in 2021 or are we 1974? In other words, or 1874, the minstrel show, or, you know, 1920, the early, you know, in other words, are we replicating these stereotypes? Now, what prevents you from having to do that is if you have an institutional base, if you have a collective base. And of these people in the interview, finally, Bea Richards, look her up, B-E-A-H Richards. Oh, man, when you tug on Bea Richards, she's going to take you back to the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Uh, Lisa Gay Hamilton, for example, the actress, did a very participated in a very important documentary on Bea Richards. You're talking about a contemporary of Paul Robeson, Ozzie Davis, and Ruby D. Very and she says at this stage in her career, remember she said, I, I was getting into debates and arguments on the set of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Spencer Tracy, because remember she was in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. But that's what white face and media would know her for. She's got a huge history in the black theater, black film. She says at this stage in my career, I would much rather just make independent community theater because if you only have a dime to make a film, better you use that dime and make a film. Are people going to see? I hear the voice of my dear friend and elder, the great Haile Garima and his wife, Shrikiana Garima, who have never gone to Hollywood to make film, but who produced so many people who have gone out and done incredible work from um, Arthur Jaffa, uh, you know, to my man. Um, oh, what's Brad's last name? I'm thinking about him now. He'll come to me in a minute. But all these filmmakers, they won't go because they said, we got to tell our stories. Bea Richards, sitting next to uh, Cicely Tyson, who has said, I will be the one, one of the ones who break into that space, but I'm coming to represent us and I'm coming from us, meaning I'm gonna keep my spirituality, keep my community. Bea Richards is like, yeah, and I'm all for you, sis. And I'm just gonna stay with the community and do my craft there because, you know, it's not in my spirit to do that work that you're doing in the way that you're doing it now. That all ties to the Haitian Revolution in this way. When we live and connect our spiritual traditions out of our traditions without apology, now we can debate, you know, the nature of those traditions, what's good, what isn't good, uh, whether it be Nollywood coming out of Nigeria or every Tyler Perry movie he had ever made, which is one of the reasons I think probably Cicely Tyson messed with Tyler Perry. If you tie in, you're going to see God somewhere in it. I don't care if it's a 10 minute Nollywood movie, if four of them ain't devoted to some form of God. And if you see a Tyler Perry movie, you know, at some point Jesus showing up. In other words, it's going to be tapped into that spirit force. And guess who responds to that? It ain't going to be the movie critics necessarily. It ain't going to be the people in the Academy for Motion Picture Arts. It's going to be the people. Because we never left our spiritual traditions. It's the fuel that allows us to make it day by day. And when we bind together, it's the fuel that allows us to transform whatever society we find ourselves in. We can't, we just don't need to be scared of it. Now, now I do believe we should start. Well, this is just editorial. I'm just gonna say this. No, I won't say it. I'll let the ancestor speak. John Henry Clark said, I will know that African countries are one step closer to true liberation when an African head of state prays to an African God in public.
I just stopped. <laughs> oh. Okay. There are so many people right now who are shunning God because of how God shows up without yeah. understanding that we show up in God, not the other way around. Right. White, white people did not bring God to us. We're not no, praying. You are praying to a white Jesus, then you know that's something you gotta you know, in fact Christianity was African export. Christianity, oh, Bradford Young, Brad Young, Brad Young. But Christianity was in there's no Christianity in Europe. Christianity came out of Africa. Christianity was around for centuries before Constantine and them realized they can't stop it. And then 330 something, 332 or so called the Nicaea, the council at Nicaea, followed by the other ecumenical councils. Theodosius closes down the schools in Egypt. That's later. It's a we gave them Christianity. And they turned around and tried to make it white and gave it to us and hope we had amnesia. Then we took it and blacked it up again. We blacked it up now. <laughs> These children, boy, running around in the world house, as Dr. King might say, chapter six of where do we go from here? Chaos of community. The world house. You let your children run around in the house without supervision, they'll tear up the world. You better go talk to these children. Stop acting like they're the parents. Oh, I should leave that right there. You better stop. Because yeah, because if you get if you don't understand, you might be like John Cheney coming up that aisle. <laughs> I'll kill <you. laughs> My man, I should stop. I love I loved John Cheney. I'm gonna tell you right. You would see John Cheney in the in the market. You would see John Cheney in the little restaurants. John Cheney was beloved in Philadelphia, and it wasn't because of all the games he won at Temple. It's because when you saw John Cheney, you saw somebody that changed young people's lives. And when you heard Gene say that, I can't say enough about Dr. Tina Sloan Green and the black women and men who were at Temple on faculty and staff. And so, you know, when you bring a, can you imagine, Karen, bring a child from Newark, she sees somebody like Gene, say so you play, and I saw, I was fortunate enough to see it at Howard because Howard at one time now, Title IX, it had messed up the game. They had women's mm -hmm. field, field hockey. And you would see those, that's one thing, and we talk, maybe we talk about this another time. The HBCU tours. That's a uniquely black invention, like the family reunion. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, them those HBCU tours where you see children who had never been on a college campus, and they get on a bus in New York or Orange or Trenton or Philly or Baltimore, and then they then they drive and they drive straight to Atlanta, and then they work their way back up. And by the time they get back home, they have been on these campuses with these people who look just like them, who are no different than them, who are from their hometowns. And they say, I want to I want to go to Clark, Atlanta. I want to go to North Carolina A&T. I want to go to Norfolk State. Oh, I should say this 30 seconds real quick. When Vivian Stringer took her team to the first NCAA championships to the final four and they were in the last game. I think Maryland was the fourth team in the final four when they went to. uh play Louisiana Tech, they were uh, in Virginia. Cheney couldn't afford to send the band. So guess what? Norfolk State. Some of y'all Norfolk graduates says, what do y'all say at Norfolk State? Behold, the green and gold. Well, that weekend, it was not green and gold. The Norfolk State team, the Norfolk State University sent their band to represent Cheney because Cheney needed a band because everybody else had their band there. And see, that's what it looked, that's what collective looked like. That's what it looked like. Y'all don't know nothing about it. This is when we went. Norfolk said, we got you, sis. Norfolk sent their band. And, that, and Norfolk band for that, that game was Cheney's band. 
Very, very, very important. Anyway. And, you know, as you're talking about that, you know, this week there was this, uh, you know, this stock market thing that happened with, you know, GameStop and AMC and uh, folk lost their minds. But what I came out of it with, you know, we did have a discussion about it from a financial standpoint was this is what it looks like when people come together around a common cause. And it ain't hard. It's not hard. hard. And we keep doing we've been doing it. So I'm not, you know wagging my finger saying, why don't black people do that? Black people do that. We do that all the time. Well, that's a good thing, Karen, for us having these conversations, right? Because what we're doing is just coming up with a few examples of how we did it. Imagine that. John Cheney, Vivian Stringer, both in the Naismith Hall of Fame at a HBCU where they turn the heat off between the semesters, cooking for the whole men's and women's basketball team on two hot plates in the concession stand in a gym they got to damn near break into to practice. That's not speculation (laughs) i mean so what does that mean we got to do better and what does it mean as that's where the shoestring that's why i was thinking it wasn't standing tall i thought because because they used to say to each other we do this on a shoestring and then when she went to iowa i forget what was the press conference when she went to iowa or Rutgers, where she was like now i get you know to cook with all kind of shoestring potatoes but i'm used to a shoestring as jesse jackson said first time i saw jesse in 1984 when we were working on jack jackson campaign he came to nashville he was at vanderbilt standing room only and we all there and he got up in front of that white crowd he said you know what if they had my budget they could not compete if i had their budget they could not compete and everybody just started <laughs> <That's true. laughs> i mean you think about even here i didn't know that gene went to temple how about you didn't? And pl- no, she, you know, she's been on my show. Her, she and her husband, you know, yeah. of course, I grew up listening to Janae. Janae is amazing, you oh, know. No question about yeah. it. So I was, I was geeking out when, when they reached out. I was like, we got an album. I was like, Janae knows me, you know, like Jean <laughs> Baylor knows me, you know. Uh, and her husband, they're just the most lovely couple, too. Uh, it's a pleasure to be around them. They're hilarious. Um, so when she hit me in the DMs, was like, I got a question for Dr. Carr. I was like, you're listening on Saturday? I didn't know. Too. I'm like, what are you saying? Yeah, what is happening? And so I just was like, come on in, ask it live. She was like, I don't know. I was like, come on, ask it live. And then I'm like, what are the odds that she went to Temple and you were there around the same time? Yep. Well, you know the odds. In fact, the question she well, the question she asked, the observation she made, you're the living proof of it. Y'all, we don't pre- we don't plan this. This is the answer. This is this is the thing we can't see. You know what they're doing right now? They saying we approve. Every okay. time that happens, they like we approve. Here's some more incentive. We well, I'm about to drop this. something else. So we're not supposed to talk about 1776 today. So everyone that did the homework. Oh yes, well, we ain't got time. We should, uh, we should at least uh, should at least mention this though. Maybe okay. add this for next week. We come to we we gonna we gonna oh because today's the thirtieth, right? Yes, it is. To, yes, it is the thirtieth of January. Car G Woodson. That's why he started Black History Week. Become Black History Month. We know that this this a year ago to this day, I was in Chicago at the Center for Inner City Studies with our friend, now an ancestor, Conrad Worrell. It was one of the last times he was in public having a conversation. We did uh, Black History Month. Uh, kickoff the 30th and so shout out to my beloved family in Chicago uh, to the new ancestor Conrad Royal but if you didn't do if you get a chance in fact those of you who want to get a nice piece get to your young people here's Jacob Carruthers we were at the Jacob H. Carruthers Center for Inner City Studies I've showed y'all this book a couple of times Intellectual Warfare Arthur Schlesinger in 1991 did a whole hit piece on the African Center movement 
called the disuniting of America. We talked about that. I ain't saying by that. See if you find a PDF somewhere online. But Dr. Carruthers, <laughs> and it was uh, Mama Ife, Ife Carruthers, uh, Dr. Carruthers' widow, who reminded me, um, and I pulled it off the shelf, chapter nine, Neo-Hegelian Multiculturalism, a critique of Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s The Disuniting of America. You want to read that in advance because between the 90s and the curriculum wars, the 80s and 90s, and now, like everybody's giving, uh, what's her name, Cheney? Liz, is it? Liz, yeah. they're giving her all this credit. Oh, she stood up. Yeah. Go check Liz Cheney mama up. Lynn Cheney was over the National Endowment of the Arts, and she came out against the standard curriculum that had been floated, uh, national standardized curriculum, because she said, y'all mentioned Harriet Tubman in here six times and the Gettysburg Address only once. What the hell is going on? Arthur Schlesinger came out and said, I think the far right is wrong. I think the far left is wrong. I'm against the multiculturalists, those Afrocentrists in particular. And he started naming names like a hit list. And he said, I'm also against these ultra white nationalists. He tried to make them the same thing. The 1776 Project, yeah, we're going to spend some time on that. Read some of the critiques that took place in the curriculum wars. We're going to talk about, we're going to put all that in context, but you're right. We won't be able to get into today, but I just want to drop a more, a couple more sources. In case folks want um, the ancestors wanted us to do this. Yes, uh, they did. Just briefly, how did Africans honor folk who had passed? Because I think, you know, a lot of times we grieve and we grieve, we miss the people that are here, but I feel like it, it we, we grieve in a very Eurocentric way as well. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give yeah. just a little bit of how Africans and I know that's broad because sure we weren't monolithic in Africa or no. whatever that country was called yes the continent the whole entire continent right um, but what what are some threads or some tenets that we can borrow or remember oh that's good that's good uh, I would say this very quickly and you're right there's no one Africa but there are there are many commonalities um, one is intimacy. Think about Maladimo Somme, but in intimacy, what does that mean? When a person makes transition, it doesn't break the intimacy and the death ritual kind of cements the intimacy going forward. So it wasn't uncommon to wash the body, to sit with the body. It isn't just Jews sitting shiva, let's be clear. And, you know, don't get too cute about it. But in some ways you could see Judaism as an African export too, depending on how you want to read it. But at any rate, you know, there's an intimacy with the physical remains. You sit with the remains, you dress the person. I mean, burial rituals are very important, which leads me to the next thing. It's always important. Well, not always, but the, oftentimes it's important where you place your ancestors. And, you know, black folk get real particular about where they want to be buried. Now we got more people. I want to be cremated. I want to be here. But, you know, no, I want to go with my mother. I want to go with my family, but you were married to Pop Pop for a year, but I want to go with my, I know it because this is the place to which the third piece comes. You return. We have to always honor our, and see, because what we're doing by doing that, we're, we're not, we're not keeping them physically alive. We're keeping their spirits with us. And that allows us to call on them. So for example, today, when we, when we leave here in a minute, a few minutes, I'm going to switch over the, uh, the Banneker Woodson divisions of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World, Marcus Garvey, Amy Jakes Garvey, Amy Ashwood Garvey, that organization, the UNIA and ACL, uh, are having their 40, the 40 day ritual for the transition of Marcus Garvey uh, Jr., the oldest son. Marcus, uh, Julius Garvey, of course, still alive, doctor there in New York. Uh, Marcus Garvey Jr. made transition in December. 
this is the 40 day ritual they're doing the 40 day ritual today and i'll be participating along with some other folks uh willie wilson of course the pastor the famous pastor here in dc number of uh, matsumela mark thompson is going to be the, the mc so in some traditions it might be 60 days it may be 50 maybe 40 it may be 30 but after the person makes transition you then regather because the death ritual is heavy it's the prayer because what the, a lot of traditions will believe at the moment you make transition you start your journey into the next phase of existence it isn't instantaneous so then what you do is after somebody makes a transition you begin to pray you call their names you evoke them you light candles why because they're now journeying and you gotta you gotta keep that bond with them strong because they're joining now eternity they're going back into eternity after a certain moment you mark the idea that they're there now they're the young ancestor. And so then you have a celebration. In other words, it allows us to pair and to give the grief voice and then come back in a moment and join the celebration. They've made it. And then after that, when you pour libation and call their name, that's why I'm very particular about it. We do libations since uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many Ahmaud Aubrey and some of them have died. If they're not blood ancestors, you call their names. Why? Because they will fight for us and they will fight for themselves. And so that gives us the sense that Cicely Tyson went the way we're all going to go. What a blessing to get 96. Come on. You take them two numbers and switch them around the other way. I don't know. I'm guaranteed to get the 69. <laughs> so 96. And then, but, but, but she's going to make transition. So when this moment we're sad, we're heavy, what we do ha has been incredibly helpful. I know to me and to you in our conversations, given this ritual, and then they fight for us. They they absolutely fight for us, and that's and then but Brianna Taylor, she's an ancestor too 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 young, but that don't mean she don't fight for us. So guess what? Somebody might say, well, Mitch McConnell, she didn't win no election in Kentucky. No, but Georgia made Mitch McConnell the minority leader. Some people gonna say, yeah, Brianna Taylor was in that. She's so disgusted at Daniel Daniel Cameron that she wrecked his chance to be on the Supreme Court ever. Ha ha, young Dan, you think the power is on this side, bruh? This is a frack. This is the pinhole where we live with our living moment now. It's like a little pinhole. The most of it you can't see, and she over there now. So you can't you can't do nothing about it, bruh, except get your mind right and try to come on back to the home team because otherwise you're just gonna be taking L's the rest of your life, as he should. Yep, until until he change, everybody can change, but uh. You know, I think I'm crying at the end of their life, wanting forgiveness. Yeah, this brother. Um, hey, you mentioned you mentioned a cemetery in London. Oh, how the ancestors work. Again, I don't know the folk who are coming in. They DM me, and here is Daryl, or is it Darrell from no, London? Daryl from <laughs> London. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, and he probably knows that cemetery that we couldn't think about. Yeah, no, this is uh, it was Africans. So um, there's 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 a mass grave uh in a place called Blackheath, which is in southeast London. Um, there's a place yes. uh in Clapham Common uh where there's a mass grave uh for Africans that are there, but also for Europeans or British people at the time. Um, yes. and there's another grave site. Um, it's just just on the outskirts of um southeast London. Um, there's another place where Africans are buried. Um, but essentially, these these mass graves where these Africans are, um, especially the ones that are mixed with British people, um, yes. they it's, they've turned it into parks. So now they can't build on top of it. So they this is a mass area where it's just greenery greenery upon greenery um, because of the 
amount of people that have been buried in these areas, um, they can't build on top of it. So it's just literally greenery. Um, but it's only until you read the small plaques as you enter into these spaces that you see uh, about the history. But otherwise, people just think it's a park and, you know, they have fun fairs and stuff like that there. But essentially, they have these these mass graves. But no, no one really knows about it unless you, you, unless you know, unless you're researching it. Um, yeah. Do y'all do, do rituals like rituals of remembrance? Are there anything you do around these pe the places, like black people? Yeah. yeah, well, um, some people do because here, which is kind of tied into the question which I had for you anyway, um, was there's a few people that do rituals, but not really. These are people who are been part of the Pan African movement. So oh, you're cool. oh, cool. here, right? And they are the you, ones you're folks Jamaican man. So, so yeah, so my family's from Jamaican Barbados, but so did, 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 are, are y'all part of the uh, are they part of the Windrush generation? Yeah, well, this is what I'm about to talk to you about. And oh, yeah, please talk about. to us, man. Let everybody know what that is. Okay, so, um, right, so thank you for first and foremost, like, listen, I'm telling you, like, week in, week out, like, uh, it's this is an honor, honestly. No, honor, honor. I, I really do mean that, brother. This is and thank you because you showing us we worldwide, man. I, I just had, I had a question, um, Daryl, because I'm just yeah. meeting you. You watch us in London? Oh yeah, hundred percent. So how, how did you find how did you find the class? Uh, wow. So I was um I would say because because Carol, I've been I've been um watching you for years for time. There uh, you go. <laughs> um, I've I've my first kind of like real introduction to both of you is the first interview you did um with uh with dr wow. so you when you speak, about, yeah. right, you speak about africana studies and you're talking about ways of knowing because yeah. um i'm a teacher myself i'm a historian so i do oh, black yeah. history tours in central london where we look at the colonial history between britain and the caribbean so yes, what i've got to do now is i've, in, I've imp implemented that in something called um saturday school saturday schooling is a supplementary way of alternative learning in britain so in the 1960s um because of the matter let me start so going to there's a period in time just after world war ii 1948 was a period of time where um there was a journey that was made from the Caribbean um, of a certain section of people um, who wanted to help develop Britain. So after World War II, um, Germany literally destroyed a lot of London, a lot of the UK. Yeah. Um, however, with the uh, population in Britain, there wasn't enough people here to sort of remend and you know repair uh, uh, Britain back to how it was. So what they did, they, they, they created this call out to the Caribbean, but it was the new Commonwealth. So the old Commonwealth, was all the areas that Britain colonized. Yeah. And then it was like the early 1930s when they created the, the, the new Commonwealth, where they got rid of the areas that were white. So they got rid of Canada, they got rid of South Africa, they got rid of Australia, they got rid of New Zealand, but they kept the Caribbean, they kept most parts of Africa, and they kept um, southern part of Asia. So all the places that were non-white, they kept in the Commonwealth oh which still by the Queen. So, so the 30s, that's about the time when your man's, uh, your homie, uh, C.L.R. James came to England. Yes. I know Paul Robeson played Toussaint. And, uh, the, yeah. Exactly, right? So obviously this is George Padmore time as well. Oh, he was oh, Ralph McConan, Arnold Casper. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, right? So, oh, yeah, um, this is great. So when when Britain when the war ended in um, 1945, hmm. um, the Britain was awarded a ship. It was actually a German ship called Monte Rosa, M O N T E Rosa. It was a German ship. So they was given that, and then they developed the name Empire in Rush. 
So the ship is actually called NY Rimwash, but it's actually a German ship. So they had this call out to the Caribbean, like, please help, help us build back the nation. So Caribbean people at the time, they saw themselves as British. So even though you, you had like Jamaica, Barbados and so on and so forth, they were still British subjects in, yeah. in, in the eyes of Britain. So um, they was like, okay, Britain's the mother country. Um, let's just go out there and help. So they came over here in 1948. But what the plan was, was that he wanted people to help build Britain for like a few years, like three, four years, and then go back to the Caribbean. But, you know, where black people set out shop, we stay hey, put, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and make it black as hell. Exactly. <laughs> but how Britain played it smart was because 1948, um, in the early parts of July, there was this um, scheme that was put together by a, name, a guy named Aniri Bevan. Aniri Bevan created something called the National Health Service, which is the NHS. NHS, yes, Right, free health service. But how um, medication is paid for is through the taxes of the public. However, he didn't have um, enough people to work the system. So when he was calling out for the Caribbean people to come over, he needed the nurses, he needed doctors and so on. So the, the people that came over from the Caribbean, they were just like people that wanted the trip. These were individuals who uh, were working at high class levels. Um, exactly right Man. so a reason why they wanted to do that as well get the Caribbean people to work on you know to work on the trains and the buses and to be doctors and nurses is because britain wanted white women to stay at home so same <laughs> how you have the redlining program in the states where you got um suburban areas where blacks couldn't live in what they wanted to do is get black people in the caribbean to come help rebuild the nation whilst yes. white women stayed at home and produced children because they wanted to work and whatnot. So Britain was like, no, 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 white woman, you stay at home. We would get other people to do these jobs and you right. can produce the children. So what right. they did, they set up projects just on the outskirts of central London where black people could live in. So when they built these projects of high-rise buildings, we would live at the top. So we can see into central London where everything is, all the riches is, but we can't live there. So how they did it is through the Right, so you yeah. live close enough to work in the city, but you that's can't right. live. That's so, right. Amer America's catching up now, but that's the model. Are you in Paris? It's the suburbs of Paris. Right. They always put you on, of course, the favelas. I mean, yeah, yeah. So you can see close enough, but you can't work. So, um, I mean, by 1961, there was like the population of people in Britain who were born in the Caribbean was like 161,000. But obviously, when Britain put this out to the Caribbean, white people in Britain didn't know what was what, basically what was going to happen so when they see it's influx of black people coming in they're like hold on what is going on here hey, so Kaiser he book the uh the pan-african uh movement he calls it the boomerang effect <laughs> you went out here to colonize these people you didn't realize they was coming to see you at your house <laughs> exactly, right but now here's 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 the the trickery because the question was, uh, um, um, how do we build the connections and the relations between the story of the United States and African-Americans and oh. black citizens? Because their stories, our stories are very similar. And a lot of, when I speak to a lot of my, the brothers and sisters in the United States, they're like, so what's it like in London? Is there black people there? I'm like, the story is crazy because, for example, we had, um, uh, in, in the 50s, there was a lot of police brutality and also there was a lot of racist people who oh, were... Yeah. I think the, the first book I read about uh, in, in the 80s version was a, was a Stuart Hall, Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, right. So, um, I mean, that, come, that comes later, but I mean, you 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 lay in the foundation for what happens in the 80s. So you're saying back in the 50s, they ended this thing. Right. So, so in the 50s, we had um, 
uh, popping. Uh, obviously, the numbers are growing. The Windrush generation is growing. Um, and also, what what I want to do is share with my brothers and sisters in the states and with you is that the Windrush Empire they call that the section of when Black people from the Caribbean came over. But it's tricky because when we say the Windrush Empire is Caribbean people coming to the Britain, white people in Britain associate the ship with black people. When there's a lot of people that came over on a on a plane. So when we say Windrush oh, Empire, yeah. a lot, yeah. So my grandparents, my my grandmother's from Barbados, she came over on a plane. So a lot of people, they were bougie, they were flying, they were flying, not <laughs> on the ship. Right. So right. We, we got to kind of steer away from the British narrative that we came on ships because it just sounds like colonialism all over again right so during the 50s you had this whole concentration of black people who were building their own own sections so in the 50s and 60s there was a lot of race riots so you had someone named claudia jones who was a journalist oh, great, man. i got all claudia, claudia jones stuff oh yeah yeah oh yeah right. no question no question exactly right do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, we just might as well have Ida B. Wells a little bit. But um, oh, no. she, comes over, she, she comes over to Britain and there's a lot of um, police brutality going on. She yeah. starts the first black British um, newspaper called the West Indian Gazette. And yes, within that, she talks about stories of black British existence. I wish Claudia I could find Jones, Have you seen uh, Carol Boyce Davies' book? It's called Left of Karl Marx. Yes. Right, she's buried in the same graveyard. She left. She's, a t she, she, she's yeah. You talking about Marx? If you don't know Claudia Jones, you ain't even hit. It just, so, exactly. so I'm sorry, but go ahead. So the West Indian Gazette. That's her. That's her. That's her platform. Yeah. So she was using that to kind of uplift the black community because there was no black presence in terms of media, and yes. also there was a lot of deaths by the hands of racist white people, where people, you know, no one went to jail for it. Um, police that were treating, um, you know, black people at the time bad. No one went to jail for their treatment as well. So in 1959, she wanted to bring around this unity. So in 1959, she said, you know what? Let's bring around all the cultures in the UK under wow. one roof. Um, oh and, you know, from there we can show that we can work together. Claudia Jones is the reason why we have the carnival. So she created yes. the first carnival in 1959. And then it was picked up in 1966. Um by a section of people who said, you know, let's make a street carnival. So then Notting Hill Carnival became Notting the biggest Hill. carnival yeah. outside of Brazil, right? So but it was tell me it's not a movie with Hugh Grant? It's, uh, you know. Yeah, right, right, right? No, it's not. No, no, no. No, exactly. It's like, come on. So they gentrified Notting Hill, but Notting Hill is was a section where a lot of Caribbean, Carib Caribbean people resided, right? Yes, sir. So she worked with someone called John LaRose as well. John LaRose was a guy from Trinidad as well, and he... um created the first black British bookstore called New Beacons Books in North London. Right, New Beacons Bookstore um, housed CLR James Padmore's works. He's created George Padmore Institute there as well. So yes. um, there yes. was a high concentration during the 60s because tying it to Black History Month, because you and Karen earlier was talking about uh, um, Carter G. Woodson. And yes. this was the question about unity is because the connection between Black British presence and existence and Black power movements in the UK is tied so heavily to the United States is unreal. So we celebrate... Oh, Y'all have, have that real connection. In fact, New Beacon, I mean, I'm looking around, I have some, but you know, also, um, what about Bogle Loverture? Because they, they're the first ones to publish Walter Rodney, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, in fact, I got, I got one in Lowell Loverture. Hang on, look, look, I'm being this. You, you are dropping so many gems. That connection... But I, I get the sense, though, if you look for it, that it sounds like you want these people. There are people who are doing this Pan-African work there in London. How, how are y'all making these connections, particularly now with technology? 
Like so, what we normally so, so the only so reason of the, the, the Pan African movement because remember in 1945 um, George Padmore had the fifth Pan African Congress here in Manchester yeah. and yeah, you know. Well, it was, Amy, it was Amy Jakes or Amy Ashwood that was there? Amy Jakes, yeah, 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 Amy Jakes. Amy Jakes was there, yeah, yeah, she's sitting next to me. Wow. Yeah, like, wait a minute. Garvey died, um, you know, the Pan-African movement was still going on. To the yes. level of, um, we celebrate Black History Month here since 1987. The first, wow. we celebrate in October. Where you lot got February, we've got October. And the reason why we have it is because on the 1st of October, a gentleman was invited from the United States to come to County Hall in Central London to, to talk about and to honour, you know, the Black British experience and people in the diaspora and, you know, the works that they've done, right? And this person that came over was Maluga Karenga. Karenga came over ah. to the <laughs> in, in 1st of October, 1987, but there was a Ghanaian analyst called um, uh, Akiaba Adu Sabo. Um, oh, yeah. And he was the one who gave birth to the first um, Black History Month. But if it wasn't for Karenga coming over, we wouldn't have it. For example, in 1963 here, um, there was a bus boycott. We had our own bus, bus, um, bus boycott here because they're in Bristol, bus companies mm -hmm. were not hiring black people. So what did they do? And the community in Bristol was like, okay, well, if we're not hiring black people and Asian people, we ain't going to get on your buses. The bus boycott lasted for four months. And My Bristol God. was like, all right, fair enough, because they was losing a lot of money. Um, and also, uh, because in, in the 1960s here, we have something called the Race Relations Act of 1965, which was um, an act that had to be put forward by the government because there was discrimination against black people here based upon, um, well, literally just on skin color. But what they had, they had signs up in uh, pubs, bars and hotels that said no blacks, no dogs and no Irish. So United mm. States, where you had um, coloreds and white only, we had no blacks, no dogs and no Irish and people were abusing it. So then uh, what they did now was create uh, an act that said, no, you can't do that. So white society was like, okay, cool. However, that means even though we, we, you know, we can't have no dogs, no blacks and no Irish, it doesn't mean that we don't have to employ you. So we're not going to employ right. you, we're going to keep our business white. So they had to change that in 1968. And then they came up with the Race Relations Act of 1968, which said, you know, well, you can't discriminate based upon uh, based upon colour. Um, I mean, the relationship between the UK and US, I mean, we've got just there was a... Can you bring in a little bit of the connection between the UK and South Africa too? Because I know like a lot of the publications, the anti-apartheid stuff is being driven out of... Uh, out of the UK. In right. fact, what's the name of the journal? Uh, is it Race and Class? Cedric Robinson. Oh. It's writing. I mean, a lot. You probably got one right there. Don't you? <laughs> you know what's another book? This one here. It's oh, called, you know what? Um, I just got that book. It just came out. Right here. So, I just got this. My Pluto hey. Express. If it was. Pluto. Do you know what? Yeah. I've got a lot of books, right? But it's because of you and Karen where I start looking at. Hey, Daryl, you you know they just had a sale. That's probably why we both bought that joint, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. So this book is important um, because this is like an anthology based upon the Black experience. So it Absolutely. talks about right people from uh, 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 people from South Africa and how you know the relationship between Pan African movement. Um, of the Kosa people and you know a lot of the um, Africans in because you know you had someone like um 
this gentleman here, who's oh, from Kenya, Wafiango, he was the one that, you know, put forward a lot of decolonizing the African mind and inspired a lot of um, Pan-Africans in South Africa, as well as um, one of my favorite books as well was um, by Chin Wezu, oh, Nigerian. You know, Chinwezu's still around, man. He just low key yeah. in Nigeria. That, right. That one right there, that one and his other one with the West and the rest of us, those are yeah. those are impossible to find. You and you got the old copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've inspired me to go to the originals. So yes, you and Karen were talking about going to the first releases and the first publications. I had yeah. to get, you know what I mean? And there's a brother um in North London who's um it's a center right close to New Beacon's books who was stocking stocking these. So really UK. Uh, yeah, if any books in the UK that you can't get over there, I can send them over to you. That y'all have. I mean, I remember I was there in 2000. We were there for the 100th anniversary of the first Pan African Conference, A. Sylvester Williams, and we went to Red Lion Square. And oh. y'all, I mean, the 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 book culture that y'all that the Africans in London have created. I found a copy of uh the big book that um that was edited on Pan Africanism from 1850 to like 1975. And I eventually met the brother. He's from the Gambia. He's an ancestor now. His name right. is you know, um, Adeli Langley, J. Adeli Langley. But how is the book culture today there? I mean, like when you, those books you're showing, those books are almost impossible to find in the United States, even at the black uh, places, but you, is, is it still a vibrant? Yeah, book but it's called there's a small pocket because the reason there's a small pocket of Pan-Africanists, Pan-Africanists that are, still upkeeping, you know, small publications, you know, New Beakers are still thriving and still putting out books, but they're oh, still yeah. because remember, um, tying it back to what I was saying earlier about the 60s, um, uh, we had to form our own community. So the Saturday schools was alternative to the state schools because they weren't teaching the right history. Within yes. there, we had great speakers come over and pass on their connections to how you can still get these publications. And those people are still around today um, you know, some of them are elders, but they still got the connection where we can still publish these books. So we're talking about a generation and a time where um, a lot of people in the 60s um, couldn't get banks. So black people were making money, but we, we wasn't allowed to open banks. So we yeah. had to create a system here in the UK called Partner, which is a Caribbean term saying partner. And what we would do is form a banking system. So, for example, let's say me, you and Karen um, was going to create a partner. What we would do is in the middle of the pot, or you be the banker. So this week I'll give you $20. Karen will give yeah. you $20. And then by the following week, that's $40. And then whoever um we take it in turns who can take the money. So Karen might say, I need to, I need $40 to get whatnot. So she'll take the yeah. $40 and then like build a, yeah, the collective year. No exactly. question. Which is a West African thing as well. You know what I mean? So when you yeah. inspired me, when you spoke about the Bambara, talking about the Jalias and the, the bloodline and yeah. um, being a storyteller of Grio. When I started to research more of Mbarwa, they have a system similar to that as well. Yes. So that still goes on today, but it's in small pockets. Um, but you know, it's 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 the book culture is right, but it's it's hard to um, kind of uh, because I, I believe in spirituality, which you're talking about. I feel like the longer we, as Caribbean people, the longer we spend time here, we mm. go for a deeper culturation process. So really? from the 40s right up until like the early 2000s, we had this, you know, William E. Cross talks about the Negro to Black conversion, right? Ah, yes, oh. negrescence. <laughs> right, right. So when he talks about that, we had that process because we had small communities that we had to stick together. Now, oh. as we, as our teeth are getting sunken in deeper into British society, where there's small groups of us 
are holding on for dear life, but because of the strong suit of Brexit, it's hard for a black presence to have that presence as we did in the well, 80s. Ask you about that, man. What, what, what do you think about Brexit? How well, is it going to get us? Well, Brexit for black people is going to hit us because there's certain universal laws that Britain has to follow suit in, in terms of, you know, identifying race. So same what they did with France, for example, where they've got rid of, when it, when it comes to filling out a census, they got rid of religion and, and race. So mm -hmm. when you're black French, you're an African French essentially, but in terms of being black, it's kind of hard to identify that when it comes to census. Same thing that what they're going to do with, with Brexit. Brexit was modelled via like a MAGA hat. So it was like make... That's um, an important point, Daryl. Help people understand that. This is really an internet. That's where Steve Bannon comes in. This is really an international thing. It ain't yeah. at the show. Like, you see what's happening there with Le Pen in France. This right, right wing, yeah. this white nationalist thing is serious. So, 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 what's what do you think? How's this going to unfold in the upcoming uh, months and, and years? For so, what, what's because now they've already changed. Well, Brexit's already kicked in January 1st. Yeah. They kicked yeah. So they yeah. got rid of the old passports. Our passports are all changed now. It's got a different oh, chip in there, right? So we're not part of um, the EU. We're not part of the European Union. So within that state now, what it is, it's about trading. So for those who are conservatives, so those who you call the bougie lot who don't really want to get involved with black struggle, they're the ones who see that the benefit of Brexit is that Britain as a state now, we can make trade with other nations um, at, at the rate that we want to do it at. However, they forget that they're black, right? So what's going to happen is when they start to change certain laws here in Britain, they're mm -hmm. going to be affected because it'll be hard to fight racist case. Britain has this covert way of understanding racism, whereas the United States is very overt. So we're fighting racism against racists who know they're racist, but we don't have evidence of racism because it's hard to identify with your blackness. So what Brexit's going to do now, where there's laws in Europe where you have to follow, Britain has now stepped out of that. So there's certain things yeah. that we don't have to follow. So Brexit was modelled as an anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-way of having Britain. So it was which like, let's why, get why, which is why they're able to pass it. They, 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 they're nationalists. So what they, happens to uh, the demographics, though, aren't in their favour, right? I it's mean, not because <laughs> what's funny is, is that the same thing that's happening in, in the United States is happening here in Britain, where the death rate and the birth rate of England is changing. So in the next 20 oh, years, <laughs> right? But it's, it's changing, right? So, I mean, we, in Black Britain, we only make up 3% of the population. So we're only just borderline 3 million people. But we make up 14% of the prison population. So marrying it up to the United States, in terms of proportion, there are more, there are more Black people in prison here in the UK than there are in the States. But I suspect, Daryl, do you, do you know how that number breaks down in terms of age? I suspect the younger you go, the higher that percentage gets. Yes, exactly. Because we are, we are, because a lot of, our, well, in the 1980s in Britain, you had something called the SUS law, the SUS law. And the SUS law was the police officers can arrest you on, on the suspicion that you're going to do a crime. You haven't done it yet. But you look suspect, so we can actually arrest you and throw you in jail, right? Yeah. And it's based upon something called an 1824 vagrancy law. So same how United States, you've got your vagrancy law, we've got ours. But in the 80s, what they managed to do was manifest that, and the police used that to arrest anybody, and you can get thrown in jail. So you could be in a crowd, um, just about to cross the road, right, across the street, and you could be standing next to a white person, minding your business, 
and the police were coming to arrest you and say, do you know what? You was about to rob that person next to you. You was about to steal. And he's like, what? I'm actually looking. But they can do that. But obviously, it was it was um, it was racially biased. So over seventy yeah, percent of the people arrested were black. So then Margaret Thatcher, you know, Margaret Thatcher come from the eighties and the seventies. She was like friends of Ronald Reagan, and yeah. right. So she was well, the that, one that, that was the one that destroyed a lot of the Windrush Generation records, right? I mean, so now <laughs> can they even get their benefits? Have y'all fought that war yet? I mean, the way I understand well, it. Now, now you've got the uh, uh, Windrush generation kind of like committee, and they're fighting for a lot of people, but they're doing these secret deportations. So someone likes that's it. what I was hearing. Yeah, yeah. So they're deporting a lot of people back to. So you imagine you're you've come over 1951 with your parents, right? right? And you're three years old, and you haven't left the UK, but you've come over on your parents' passport. So you've been in the UK this whole entire time. Then you try to file for a certain benefit, but they're like, okay, but we need proof that you are a British citizen. Right. But you came over on their passport of their parents. So they're like, I don't have a British passport because of that. They're like, well, if you don't have a British passport, that means you're here illegally. But you're right. like, I've been here longer than you. What are you talking it's like about? It's You've like a doctor here. Except it's African people. Exactly. exactly. I ain't even interrupting. So, 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 so Thatcher then comes right. in. Okay. Right. Exactly. Oh, but, no, no, I just wanted to oh, jump the, in. Because, yeah, because I mean, amen, <laughs> hey, Carol. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so my question was, to say to, I know we, I, I'm sorry. so sorry, Karen, I know. But um, how do we as an African people unite once again in the modern state that we have? Because, you know, we've got the relationship between Africa and the United States. We've got the relationship between the UK. I mean, we had this brother. There's a brother named, I mean, his, his end story isn't nice, but there's this brother named Michael D. Frita, Frita. He was from Trinidad. His mom's from Trinidad, and his dad's from Portugal. He came over to UK in '57. He changed so his name. Name. So Michael Abdul Malik. He changed Michael his name. Abdul Malik. Malik. Yes, right. And he was Michael friends. Actually, with... in the Caribbean. I'm thinking about some. Yeah. Okay, Michael Abdul Malik. Um, he became a Muslim here, and he was he joined the Black Power movement that was here because we have Black Panthers here too. Oh, and he um changed his name to Michael X because he was inspired by Malcolm X. Because he was friends with his cousin Hal, uh, Mil, Hali, Halik Jamal or something like Hamil Jamal. About, yeah, uh, uh, he wrote the uh, book from the dead level. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, so the dead level. Yeah, it was that was Malcolm's cousin. Yeah, right. So remember, Malcolm X came here in '65. He came here on the 12th of February, 1965, yes. nine days before he was assassinated. Absolutely. Jan uh, Carew writes about it in his book, Ghosts in Our Blood. Because exactly. all cats was hanging out. That's exactly right. In fact, the, the book I'm thinking about on Michael X, I, I got in the other room. I had to go get it. Because they try to make him out like he's straight crazy. They even had him in a James Bond movie. I mean, like a caricature and stuff. Yeah. Exactly, right? And mm -hmm. then um, lastly, you had like, you had um, Angela Davis came here in 1974. After she got herself out of prison, she came here to thank because the Black Power movement was strong here. Oh, no question. How do we reconcile that movement and that belief and that system in this modern state where we understand that your struggle is my struggle and their struggle is our struggle? How do you feel like in a modern state? How can how can we how can we do that? Well, well, I'll say this very quickly. First of all, brother, this is great. This is a great first conversation. We're gonna be talking a lot. I mean, we gotta you know make sure you drop your information and things so we can sure. make sure we gotta really get together. We you have you come in and talk to some of these students, man. And, and, and before before you do, um, just on the percentage because there's a lot of uh, conversation in the chat about the percentage of London well, that number being low. Yeah, yeah, that um, the forty four percent of London is black and ethnic minority. What was the three percent? Yeah, of the UK or UK population. Or the whole entire UK. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. London is the most diverse and, uh, city. Where you're from one. is the most diverse city. Yeah. And it has black people okay. yeah, All yeah, right. Yeah. I want to check. All right. I'm out. Thank you. No, that's that's important. Yeah, because like you say, when we think when you say UK, a lot of people don't realize what is that? Wales, uh England. Singing. Wales, Scotland, and Ireland um, yeah. as well. And Ireland, yeah. So I mean that 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 Brexit is gonna make break up the UK, man. I ain't think the Irish you know, she, you Yeah, know, Scotland Scotland don't, don't want any problems with it. They oh, want to no no question. In fact, uh, was it in Googie in something torn and new? He says, you know, if you want to go look at the people they tried to make slaves, it ain't even racial in the sense that the English and the Irish. I mean, Ireland becomes the colony of England. You know what I'm saying? But, right. but um, but I think first of all, thank you, man. This is the beginning of the conversation. Um, beginning of our conversations. I would say very quickly for everybody who is listening now, and I can't wait now after we get off in, in a minute to go and look at the conversations that are being had while we're talking in this. This is what it looks like. I mean, this is what it looks like. If you all heard, and I apologize, you know, I'm so excited, man. I'm listening. You know, Daryl is uh, a, a Jegna. Daryl is a historian. Daryl is living the memory and all the names. That was an entire class in just those few minutes. Everybody from Claudia Jones. Uh, we start talking about CLR James or Ras McConnell. We start talking about Michael X. I mean, and, and there are representatives of that tradition who have always operated globally. Um, there are brothers like Edward Scobie. In fact, I think probably the first history of Black Britain I read was Ed Edward Scobie's book, Black Britain. Uh, there's a more re there's a very recent book by a sister, and I don't probably can't put my hands on it right now. She just wrote a, a book on the history of Africans in Europe, um, including heavy work in England. But it starts with that. I think that's what makes our our Saturday so unique. It's global, and so I think that's that's where we begin. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to. Ask uh, ask about um about the, those Steve McQueen vignettes that are on uh, Netflix, uh, you know, because there's a strong Pan Africanist tradition. Like like when you heard him talk about uh, Milan Karenga going there in 1987, there isn't a time in Europe. I also would have loved to hear his opinion on that Netflix documentary, by the way, with that those black people in cosplay. But there's not a time. Oh yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. What you think about that Netflix thing, man? That new document with all the black people playing like they're in the royal court. Oh. That's all you had to say, brother. But we'll, we'll pick that up on the other side. You, you don't need to. I mean, because it's so absurd on his face, right? But, but I think this is what it looks like because the tradition you are outlining is unbroken. I mean, like I said, in a second, I got to jump out because I'm going over here to Marcus Garvey Jr.'s. Uh, 40 day ritual, his father, of course, makes transition in, in London. And you know the story as well, or better than I do, Daryl, of how, you know, Garvey has a stroke and George Padmore write, writes an obituary for him. And according to Amy Jake, she's like, that's one of the things that took him completely over the edge. Padmore is writing the obituary of Marcus Garvey. And he's reading the obituary in the paper. <laughs> like, no, I'm not dead yet. And then, but England has always had that resistance. And when you mentioned Malcolm, of course, a generation before Malcolm is a man that Malcolm was listening to when he was in prison in Massachusetts, listening to recordings of Paul Robeson. Paul and Essie literally move and live in England. And of course, there's a famous picture of Paul and Essie Robeson dressed in African clothes with the students of the West African Student Union, Wasu. And when, Ro when Robeson makes Sanders of the River, you know, he, you know, he, he, he insists and they cast African students who are living in England. Here's a picture of him with Yomo Kenyatta, who's in school at the time. And so I think one thing we can do in 2021 is know that history better and connect to the people who are already doing the work. 
and you just want you're one of those people, brother. So I'm thank you for this because we also know that there there are there are folk like all of us all over the globe, and and sometimes it's just a matter of connecting, and then once we connect, we share. Because brother, that was a whole lesson. I, I look, I got cards and notes now sitting here. That's what you be looking down. I'm scribbling. <laughs> so we oh, no. appreciate oh, you. Thank you. Um, uh, if, if, if anybody, last, if anybody wanted to like get a further, further understanding and reading, um, last thing I will say is this, you have to get this book. It's called Back to Black, Retelling. Oh, that's Kehinde. Kehinde right. Yeah, Kinder Andrews. Uh, Back to Black, um, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st century, century, sorry. And Kinder Andrews has now become a professor of black studies because in 2017, um, we've now got our first ever black studies degree so we're like 50 years behind yeah so yeah, he was the, he was in the head of the team so that's like um, Birmingham City University yeah, Birmingham City University 2017 launched the first ever black studies degree in Europe okay because when so we used to we are behind so we're catching up but you know we, we are okay. no, no 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 that's good i mean in fact i, I have that book i have it in a, and he did something on another publication that just came out look i'm i'll never be able to find it now but that's encouraging yeah. to hear i mean when we would come we were university college of london this cat named femi biko and them man i mean we used to hang with those cats so, so i mean but it's good to know now the next generation has taken the baton yeah they're trying they're trying well let me say thank you because i know car dr car you have to run yeah, and yeah, they, they I gotta, look for me in the uh, in the ritual. I know, I know. I try to keep you on schedule. No, I you do, you do. But this was too good. I, that's anyway, all right. I'll get there. Daryl, Daryl, you'll be back. I appreciate you, and I'm gonna reach out to you all right so that we can have a, a a healthy conversation and maybe you can teach a lesson one day. Please, uh, in here in class. Uh, love you. Thank you, Doctor Carr. And hey, tell the Garvey's I said hey. Uh, you know what? I will definitely do that. I'm gonna you. do that first. And everybody here, we're gonna take all that energy in. For our for for our brother, yeah, Harvey Junior. And let me thank everybody. Thank you for the thumbs up, the likes, the subscriptions. And it was somebody, Karen. Uh, her name is Karen. Her father, eighty-two years old. She just uh, signed him up to to subscribe. Karen Lynn Hamilton, her eighty-two-year-old dad. She said who has low vision. She just subscribed him to to this class. So shout out to Mr. Hamilton. Hope that's Hamilton. your name. Mr. Right, 82-year-old Hamilton, and he's loving it, by the way. So I'm, I'm going to stop I'm shouting cool. into this fancy microphone that Karen gave me so you can tolerate it, brother. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so humble. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everyone. Doc, you know I love you. I, I love you, too. you in them streets. In the streets. Right, Have a love great you. weekend. See you next week. Okay. <laughs>